Welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm in charge around here, one and only full-time host. I am joined today by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, not anytime. You know, I'm not going to make it an open invitation, but I do appreciate you having here today. Um, I tell you what, before we get into things, I want to start out with a couple... I basically want to start by shilling some products. Sounds you know? good. Let's make this thing profitable here. So uh, if you want to support the show, you could always subscribe and download our new diet app called Macro Factor. Uh, you could theoretically subscribe to the Mass Research Review. Pretty good stuff. Goes out the first of every month. Mm-hmm. Or when you stock up on supplements, you could, you could go to bulksupplements.com, use the discount code SBSPOD, and get 5% off your order. Uh, so with that out of the way, how goes the road to the stage? Uh, the road to the stage goes well. Um, after, or in, in the last episode, I called my shot. Uh, I said that within the upcoming week, I was going to get below 240. That occurred. So uh, call, call me the Bambino of gradual weight loss, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, at this point, I'm I'm waking up under 240 about half the time, uh, give or take. My my trend weight is still ticking down uh, a little over a pound a week, um, and I, I've got some pretty big uh, milestones, some some additional pretty big milestones coming up, which ultimately don't matter that much because uh, all of life is meaningless in the first place. But to me, I agree. to me, they feel important. Uh, so. Getting below 240, that's obviously very cool. Uh, when I get below 239, that will be another big milestone because that'll mean I'm halfway towards ultimately what I'm trying to get to on this cut. So I started at 278 and I'm trying to get to sub 200. Uh, and, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, if I'm just diced to the socks at 210, whatever. I'm not going to shoot for for sub 200 uh, just for the sake of it. I don't think that's going to happen, though. So I, I want to see one something on the scale again, uh, just for fun. Uh, so yeah, 239 will be halfway there. Uh, and then 238, obviously, since I started at 278, uh, that'll mean that I'm down 40 pounds. So uh, I've got a nice little run of numbers where uh, they they demark interesting milestones. Um so yeah, that's all coming up. Everything's going well, and uh, I, I'm excited to hit those milestones. Um, in terms of, I guess, like insights beyond just like uh, you know, ju- just recounting numbers, which I don't think is particularly interesting content. Um, one thing that I, I guess, like one. Uh, struggle I've been having that that's stating it too strongly um but yeah one thing that's been a little bit challenging of late um which I'm pretty proud of myself for being able to cope with and continue onward is uh (laughs) ever since macro factor launched uh I've been incredibly busy uh because I'm generally a pretty busy guy and this is uh, basically an, another uh, what amounts to a full-time job on top of everything I was already doing. Uh, so I've had way less time to cook than normal. 
So that means fewer, you know, good, nutritious, home-cooked meals. Um, and so, like, for for lunch, I've still been meal prepping and uh, having good, uh, non-calorie-dense, wholesome food. Uh, for dinner, on the other hand, though, it's just way more convenience food. Like, just eat what I got to eat to hit my calorie and protein targets. Uh, but certainly putting way less time and effort into it, because I have way less time to devote to cooking uh, and <laughs> just way less time for things like sleep uh, and, and other facets of life. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, what they say is true. Um, convenience type foods, you know, uh, ordering from fast food restaurants. Like last night we had um, just like uh, freezer chicken patty sandwiches, like whatever. Uh, those are actually fucking good though. Um, not, not the best like quote unquote diet food, but man, I, I love a good frozen chicken patty, uh, cooked of course, not still frozen. Yeah. You don't um, want to eat it frozen. That'd be, yeah, that'd be bad. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely makes a big difference with regards to hunger. Uh, both because like the meals are just smaller in terms of total volume and mass. So, you know, there's there's less to uh, to sit in your stomach and and trigger some of those like gastric peptide hormones. Um, and yeah, it, it just doesn't keep you full for nearly as long. Um, so that that has made things a little bit more challenging. Um, but no, I, I've I've done a pretty good job of uh, like we talked about last time or did we talk about this on the last podcast or did we talk about this in mass audio? I think we talked about it in mass audio. I don't have any memories anymore. Yeah, so that's, I don't know. that's totally fine. But uh, d- just the concept of like accepting hunger. Oh, uh, that was, that was a mass. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been doing a pretty good job of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, w- one of the common pieces of advice that like we've given and just everyone in the fitness industry gives is like, Oh, yeah. If you're having trouble sticking to a diet and dealing with a lot of hunger, um, eating at home and like home cooked meals, uh, it's a good thing. And that's I I think that is generally good advice. And uh, my my experiences in, in recent weeks certainly bear that out. I think sometimes the advice is given in a somewhat tone deaf way, because like at this point, if someone just said like, hey, man, if you're hungry, just cook more say, fuck you, man. Like, I literally don't have time to cook more. Um, and I think that that's a situation a lot of people find themselves in. Um, I mean, a lot of people out there just have very busy lives and, you know, certain priorities take precedence. Uh, but yeah, so I, I I do think that that advice could often be given in a more uh, empathetic manner than it often is. Uh, but man, that's it's good advice. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to things hopefully calming down a little bit soon, so I can go back to cooking more because it it really uh, has been making a pretty substantial difference with regards to hunger. Yeah. Um, we'll see if that nickname catches on. What was that the the great Bambino of uh, gradual gradual weight loss. weight loss? We'll see if that uh, if that really sticks. Sure. Um, All right. How's how's your road to enlightenment going? Well, before I get there, you would have been blown away by the stir fry I made last night. Oh my god! I've been what, doing. What was it? 
Uh, it was a tofu, like Asian stir fry, mm-hmm. which is literally the only meal I make. Very nice. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of cornstarch? <laughs> I am. So <laughs> apparently it works. Uh, made my, it does as advertised, made my, my tofu very crispy in the oven, which, which oh, is, Oh, that's how you're using it. Yeah. Very important. And, uh, vegetables when you're sauteing them frozen vegetables mm-hmm. turns out temperature and timing both important that is true so yeah it, it was the, awesome the vegetables were great the crisp. Di- the direction i thought you were going with the cornstarch was like homemade sauces <laughs> absolutely not well because uh not all but a lot of thickened asian sauces are thickened with cornstarch yeah um so yeah, if, if you ever want to uh, make even more custom stir fries, uh, cornstarch is is pretty clutch in the sauce game. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I'm I'm crushing it in the kitchen. I'm also crushing it on the path to enlightenment, the road to enlightenment. Good. I have two <laughs> updates. Um, the road to enlightenment is very competitive, and I'm winning by a pretty comfortable margin. <laughs> so uh, w- one serious thing that I think is kind of helpful. Um, so here's the thing you start getting into this like secular buddhism and mindfulness and what i noticed is like it's the concepts are easy to grasp intellectually but hard to implement Mm -hmm. in your real life you know and for a while there i was just kind of grasping them but not implementing them and then i reached kind of stage two which is implementing them when you least need them which is Mm -hmm. basically like when things are going good and you're not stressed or in a bad mood, you're like, oh, I can be very content and everything's cool. And then there's like one little stressor and you revert back to your typical kind of thinking patterns, which is not great. Mm -hmm. I'm really stoked because I have this track record of failure where I'll be doing well and then there's like one stressor and all that stuff goes out the window and I revert back to normal. Yeah, But I finally am starting to have some of those instances where, you know, we we do a lot of stuff online. Sometimes people will just kind of come at you with terrible vibes. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to notice that in real time, I'm able to see that and mindfully respond and really have a much different approach to it. Like the knee jerk reaction a lot of times, especially if somebody's being like a real jackass is like, to get defensive, right? Or, yeah. or to like match their bad vibes. Um, and I, I've had quite a few instances uh, recently where I've noticed there, there's kind of a metaphor I've, I've heard in, in various Buddhist teachings, uh, which is like, you know, it goes back to a story. I'll ruin the detail, so I won't try to get it right. But the general idea is like, if somebody gives you a gift, yeah. if I try to give you a gift and you reject it, say, sorry, I, I can't accept that. Yeah. The gift still belongs to me. I tried to give it to you, but you didn't accept it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the metaphor. Like when somebody is trying to just introduce terrible vibes into your day, you don't have to accept it. And and it, thinking back to that metaphor, I've been like, oh, you're trying to give me a terrible afternoon. Not going to happen. Or you're trying to drag me into a ridiculous argument here. That's not going to work. So I, I've seen that more and more and I've been stoked about it. But nice. The really big update is that I did, in fact, reach enlightenment. Uh, I achieved it. I reached nirvana. That might be record time. I It could be. I don't so, think anyone has ever achieved uh, complete enlightenment as, as quickly as you have. There have been people who did it in one lifetime, but I'm not aware of anyone who did it in under two years. 
or under one year. Nice. Um, no, so I, I I go to a lake that's like you know ten minutes from my house, and I meditate sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like yourself, believe it or not, I'm also quite busy at the moment, given that we are busy because of the same thing. Checks out. Um, so I was meditating by the lake, and I transcended into a completely different realm of existence. And what I mean by that is I laid down on the ground in the park and passed out. (laughs) And some people, some people would be walking by and say, that's a disheveled, clearly, uh, you know, this man is not taking care of himself. He's in his 30s. He's passed out on the ground in public. I don't know that people would assume you're in your 30s by looking at you. Well, nonetheless, it's been a a rough 30 some years. It has. So the typical passerby would look at me passed out on the ground and say, that man is at rock bottom. Yeah. No, no. Quite the opposite. That's enlightenment. You've ascended to the mountaintop. Yeah. So I reject that. Not rock bottom. It's there's nothing pathetic about falling asleep on the ground in the park. Uh, and I was pretty stoked because nothing bad happened to me when, <laughs> when I was asleep on the ground in the park with all my valuable belongings around me. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the the road to enlightenment. So what about feats of strength? Feats of strength. Yeah. So there are there are a lot. And I know that these segments have a tendency to drag when there are lots when there are a lot of feats of strength. So. Uh, I, I'm going to start by just kind of listing things, not talking about them in much detail. Uh, treat it as honorable mentions. Um, uh, unfortunately for some of these, actually, it's not even that unfortunate. I doubt people actually listen to this podcast and say like, ooh, did did Greg and Eric talk about my feet of strength? Um, but anyway, yeah, th- unfortunately for, for some of these folks, uh, there were several big meets pretty recently. A lot of strong people doing a lot of strong things. Got to keep it moving. So just going to start by by basically listing a few uh, and then talk about two in more depth. Uh, so to start with, Jonathan Keiko hit a world record bench press in the 93 kilogram class drug tested. Amanda Lawrence had a world record deadlift in the tested 84 kilo class. Uh, Christy Hawkins hit uh, or I think broke her own world record in the 75 kilo uh, untested no wraps division. Uh, Joe Sullivan uh, set a world record squat in the 100 kilogram untested no wraps division, uh, j- beating a, a world record that um, Jordan Wong just recently set. Uh, so belated congratulations to Jordan and uh, congratulations to both Jordan and Joe. Uh, and Bryce, ah, oh man, I meant to uh, Google how to pronounce his name. Uh, I think it's Kralchek. I'm sure that's wrong. I feel bad. Uh, anyway, <laughs> world record deadlift in the tested 120 kilo class. Uh, and finally, Jessica Bittner, uh, world record squat in the 84 kilo tested division. Um, so like I said, a lot of strong people doing a lot of strong stuff. But then the two I want to talk about uh, slightly more uh, is Tamara Walcott uh, recently hit the heaviest female deadlift of all time. Uh, She pulled 288 and a half kilos or 636 pounds. Um, You know, that's an objectively great deadlift for anyone. 
Uh, obviously, incredibly great deadlift for a woman, seen as that is the most weight a woman has ever pulled. Uh, so congrats to her. Also, the, the video will be linked in the show notes. I'd recommend checking it out. Um, it's a very solid deadlift. Moves very smoothly, uh, very clean lockout. And um, a, a lot of world record deadlifts are, it, it seems like they're basically right at the edge of someone's grip strength, <laughs> where you, you just look at it and you say like, ah, well, if they threw on straps, maybe they could get another 40, 50 pounds. Um, I, I, I do think at the top, top levels, um, grip strength limits a lot of deadlifters. But man, when she pulls it, she just stands there at lockout for uh, what seemed like about five seconds, just just chilling, drinking the moment in. Um, so very, very solid lift, very impressive, uh, and would strongly recommend checking that out. Uh, and then finally, people who follow powerlifting a bit probably uh, knew that, that this is where the feats of strength uh, was headed in this episode. John Hack hit a just batshit total recently. Uh, he totaled 1,000.5 kilograms or uh, 225.7 pounds or 2,205.7 pounds uh, in the 90 kilogram or 198 pound division with no knee wraps. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, there's now a 75 kilogram gap between himself and the number two in his own weight class. Uh, he also broke the world record total in the hundred kilogram or 220 pound division, uh, while again, competing at 198, uh, broke Yuri Belkin's total by 28 kilos. We've talked about Yuri on the podcast multiple times. Uh, also, an incredibly strong lifter, but uh, Hack is out totaling him by 28 kilos in one weight class down. Uh, and also, that broke uh, Jamal Browner's 110 kilogram or 242 total by half a, by half a kilo. So, um, yeah, in, in one fell swoop, uh, John Hack, who is already clearly the GOAT at 198, uh, set the no wraps, untested world record total all the way up to the 242 class, um, which, uh, I mean, there's that, that doesn't require commentary. That's, that's a just nutty total. So, uh, congrats to him. Uh, jealous of how strong he is. Uh, but that's cool. Seems like a good guy. Awesome. Good stuff. So, uh, the next segment here is going to be a research review segment. Um, kind of just reviewing a couple broad topics, more so providing a bit of an update. Um, I'll be honest, I truly cannot remember the last time I talked about these topics on the podcast. Um, these are topics that come up frequently whenever I'm like doing a guest spot on a different podcast. I talk about them in the mass audio all the time. Um, but the reason I want to revisit this topic, which is refeeds and diet breaks, is because obviously uh, within the last few weeks, we launched a diet app. Uh, and so users have had questions about, you know, what's a refeed or a diet break? Uh, why might I do one? How can I do one within the app? You know, so it, it kind of reminded me that 
it's a good time to revisit this topic. Another reason I want to revisit this topic is the last time I really put thoughts down in writing on it was probably 2019. It was probably the, the metabolic adaptation manual uh, on the website, strongerbyscience.com. And uh, at that time, it was really clear that there were going to be some new findings coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of that writing was like, ah, this seems promising, but in two years, we're going to know a lot more. Well, two years have passed and we do know a lot more. So I want to dive into it. Uh, first, a quick recap, um, kind of setting the stage with a problem statement. So when an individual is losing weight, right? So somebody uh, has lost, for example, 10% of their body mass or more. Um, if we bring someone in in that state, we might notice that their total daily energy expenditure has dropped uh, by up to 25% relative to where they started um, you know, in energy balance at their previous weight. Um, so 25% drop in total daily energy expenditure is substantial. Now, not all of that is adaptive in nature. Some of that is because an individual has uh, you know, a lower thermic effect of feeding because they're eating less. Some of that, uh, a much larger portion is, is related to the fact that they are now a smaller person with less metabolically active tissue. Uh, so those are not adaptive changes. That's just what happens when you restrict energy intake and become a smaller human being who weighs less. Uh, but there is an adaptive component. And, and this is where metabolic adaptation comes into play. Uh, about half of that 25% drop, uh, up to half, uh, can be adaptive in nature. And up to 80 or 90% of that adaptation, that adaptive component is driven by reductions in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Uh, and that is the energy that's expended when you are technically, you know, active, but you're not doing structured exercise. So doing things around the house, fidgeting in your chair, things of that nature. Now, the drop in non-exercise activity thermogenesis, or NEAT, uh, is dictated by the, the hypothalamus. And the key signal driving that is a drop in leptin. So leptin is responsive to reductions in body fat. If we lose a lot of fat mass, those fat cells are putting less leptin into circulation. Uh, the hypothalamus gets the hint and this kind of cascade of events, the sequence uh, kind of unfolds. Leptin is also sensitive to short-term fluctuations in food intake. Uh, so going into a big caloric deficit, uh, even before significant fat loss occurs, that will elicit a drop in leptin. And leptin seems to be particularly responsive to carbohydrate intake. So uh, you know, even if you are introducing the same caloric deficit, if you're doing it from pretty substantial carb restriction, that might have a bigger impact on the drop in leptin acutely than if you were doing fat restriction instead. Uh, and usually it's a mixture of both, but you know, just a representative example. So we are losing fat mass. We are in an energy deficit. Leptin is dropping that feeds into the hypothalamus, uh, a structure of the brain that is really responsible for controlling overall energy balance. So the hypothalamus gets this signal and says, uh-oh, 
that's not great because uh, the main priority uh, in this context for the hypothalamus is to make sure that we've got enough energy to survive uh, and do what we need to do. So there's all these downstream effects. Uh, it affects thyroid hormones, sex hormones, um, a lot of other stuff, hunger hormones, uh, hunger and satiety regulation. But one of the big things that people talk about uh, is, of course, the drop in total daily energy expenditure. And that that makes all the sense in the world because total daily energy expenditure drops. You want to keep losing weight, theoretically, in this example. Um, and so you're going to have to keep going a little bit lower and a little bit lower with your calorie target to maintain uh, an appropriately sized energy deficit. So one of the things to bring up here before we talk about refeed and diet break research is who's actually adapting the most here, you know, um, who is really being impacted by particularly substantial drops in total daily energy expenditure. Generally speaking, it tends to be people who have lost very substantial amounts of body fat, people who are currently at really low body fat levels. So like, you know, high level physique athletes who are ready for a show, uh, and people who are in a particularly large caloric deficit with particularly aggressive carbohydrate restriction. Uh, so this is where refeeds and diet breaks come into play. There's really nothing we can do about the fat loss part. If fat loss is the goal, then loss of fat mass is by definition, unavoidable. It's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. So that part of the whole leptin balance, leptin regulation, isn't really modifiable uh, unless we're going with exogenous leptin administration, which has been done uh, in the research and is tremendously effective uh, at offsetting essentially everything that you would associate with metabolic adaptation. But theoretically, we can intervene and act upon dietary variables in the, the short-term sense. And so the whole theory with refeeds and diet breaks is, you know, is it possible that by manipulating the energy deficit and by manipulating carbohydrate intake that we could get a transient short-term acute reprieve from some of these uh, things related to low leptin? The idea is... Can we modify the diet to just temporarily increase leptin a little bit? Maybe that helps out with, you know, thyroid hormones, sex hormones, hunger and appetite regulation. Maybe it even ramps up total daily energy expenditure a little bit so that we don't have to keep going lower and lower and lower and lower. That is the general premise. And so there are basically, like I said, two different strategies here. Refeeds, usually what you're going to do is one, two, maybe three days uh, throughout the week where you bump up energy intake almost exclusively from carbohydrate. So it's basically like usually two or three really high carb days. And the idea is, you know, I would say it's probably preferable to put those in a row if you're going to do it. But the idea is if we kind of ramp things up for two or three days in a row, maybe we can get leptin up and keep it up so that the hypothalamus gets the message and says, okay, let's, let's scale back some of these adaptive processes. We, we seem to be in an okay spot here. So usually with a refeed, it's only, you know, two, maybe three days a week. Uh, and it's going to be a relatively aggressive thing because it's not the entire week. So you're going to go 
at least to maintenance, but usually even to a little bit above maintenance with, with a refeed in terms of your calorie intake. Diet breaks are a little different. Same premise. That that sounds a lot like, uh, oh, what was it called, man? Back in the back in the mid aughts, there was a book by Doctor Mauro Di Pascal or Pascali. Uh, I think it was called either the metabolic diet or the anabolic diet. Uh, but yeah, it, it was something approaching a protein sparing modified fast throughout the week with either one or two days of high carb refeeding on the weekends. Um, I don't know if I remember those details correctly, but th that was, that was very popular back in the day. Um, this uh th this general approach yeah so that's refeeds right diet breaks are a little different but a similar premise uh from a theoretical perspective the idea with a diet break is that it's going to be less aggressive you're, you're rarely going to see a diet break that goes above maintenance in terms of the calorie intake but it's longer in duration so a diet break will usually be at least a week uh, sometimes two in the literature. And theoretically, you could go longer if you wanted to. You could say, you know, you might have a pretty ambitious weight loss goal and say, I'm going to lose 20 pounds now, chill there for a month or two, and then lose the other 20. You know, you could do something like that. Uh, so we've got these two different strategies that can, they kind of fall within the umbrella of nonlinear dieting strategies because it's not just getting from point A to point B throughout the diet. It's, you know, going along, taking a break or ramping up calories, uh, and then, you know, taking another dip and so on and so forth. So there is some reason to believe that these might be beneficial, um, within certain contexts. And like I said, it all comes back to those who seem to be impacted by metabolic adaptation. The most probably have the most to gain from using, using these types of nonlinear strategies. So there is a paper by uh, Coelho Doval. There's no way I pronounced that correctly, but I'm going to keep pushing because that's what I do. I keep pushing forward. Uh, what they were looking at, the title of the paper is The Benefits of Behaving Badly on Occasion, Successful Regulation by Planned Hedonic Deviations. Uh, these were one-day refeeds. And this was not like a physiology group. It wasn't like... Uh, you know, a nutrition group or an exercise science group. This was more like a behavior psychology kind of research group. And what they found was by having these planned deviations, these one day refeeds that, you know, this would carry over more to a refeed than a diet break, most likely. Uh, they did find higher self-regulatory ability uh, or, or better self-regulatory ability, uh, higher positive affect, um, you know, better the, the individuals that had di uh, these one day refeeds develop more strategies to overcome temptations with regards to food, better motivation to pursue goals and similar weight loss within the observation period. So this was more looking at some of the psychological impacts and a one day refeed that was pre-planned so that the individual doesn't internalize it as going off of their plan actually did have some positive benefits when it comes to psychology and motivation i mean I, I can tell you that's exactly what i've been doing for my current cut yeah um yeah I, i'm not like doing a two or three day controlled carb heavy 
refeed strategy for leptin or anything like that. Uh, we have family dinner once a week. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just pre-plan like, yeah, I'm going to eat like 4,000 calories that day. Uh, don't really track anything. Always eat at least 3,000, probably generally below 5,000 most of the time. But I, I go into the week anticipating, hey, like I can, I can practice some restraint for six days out of the week because on Saturday I'm going to have a grand old time. Um, and, you know, I, I am, uh, I think, like pretty hedonically motivated by food. So knowing that that is something I can always look forward to at the end of the week um, and don't just have to completely forego for weeks or months at a time. Uh, that's, I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know that that's doing anything particularly interesting physiologically, but like you're saying, I think, I think psychologically that's, that's been pretty helpful for me. Yeah. Now there is, um, when we look back at some of the older research, there's also reason for optimism or cause for optimism when it comes to the actual tangible outcomes. Um, so there was a meta-analysis by Harris and colleagues where they were looking at, uh, uh, essentially looking at different types of diet breaks uh, and seeing how that would affect weight loss. And what they found was, generally speaking, uh, the, the pooled effect estimate leaned in favor of better weight loss in groups that had some type of a diet break type strategy. So a, a kind of a more sustained break from being in a caloric deficit. And what I thought was interesting, there weren't a ton of studies that made it into the meta-analysis, but uh, just looking at the effect sizes, the largest effect sizes generally were observed in the studies with the largest magnitude of weight reduction. And that kind of feeds into that concept that uh, these types of strategies, if we're expecting them to be physiologically efficacious, uh, we we need a problem before we present this particular solution. You mm -hmm. know, so if there's a person who's on a very modest weight loss program and not absolutely shredded, they're probably not dealing with really major magnitudes of metabolic adaptation. So any strategy that is hoping to attenuate or mitigate a metabolic adaptation by definition is not going to be tremendously impactful in a scenario where the magnitude of adaptation is minimal. Mm -hmm. Right. So there it's like when people are, uh, you know, do, doing a resistance training program that's very low volume and they're talking about deload strategies. It's like, brother, what, what are you deloading? You know? Yeah. And <laughs> that, that's a good example. Yeah. So one of the other papers that isn't brand new, but kind of brings us into the newer class of diet break and refeed type papers is the Matador study, which a lot of people are familiar with. It was available at the time that I wrote the metabolic adaptation manual. So it is covered in there. The Matador study was basically a diet break study, two weeks of dieting, two weeks of uh, energy balance, weight maintenance, uh, back and forth, back and forth for a 16-week uh, duration of, of energy restriction. So uh, what those study or what, what the results indicated with that study was basically that the group who had diet breaks did achieve better weight loss success over time, uh, even when they had kind of a longer term uh, follow-up visit. Uh, and it did appear uh, that after correcting for energy expenditure or after correcting for uh, body composition, uh, 
it attenuated the drop in resting energy expenditure that occurred over the duration of weight loss. Now, one of the reasons that people push back a little bit, you know, taken at face value, you would look at that and say, oh, cool, that's that's tidy enough, right? It stopped that reduction in energy expenditure, weight loss continued, uh, very straightforward. But the magnitude of the attenuation in resting energy expenditure dropping, you know, the, the degree to which that was attenuated, uh, mathematically could not possibly explain the, the, the magnitude of difference in weight loss success. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I, I was looking at this figure that you put in the outline and I was like, I was like, Oh man, 400 calories a day. That's a big deal. But then I saw it's in fact kilojoules per day. Yeah. And, uh, not that quite, not quite that big of a deal. And it's an unusual pattern. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like these two nice linear diverging patterns with one group versus the other. There's a little bit of volatility and noise there. Yeah. Um, and there, there's two sides of that coin that, you know, there's two potential things to consider there. So the weight loss clearly was not just uh, related to less drop and resting energy expenditure. It's not really debatable. But what happened? Uh, it could be psychological benefits that promoted better adherence during the dieting protocol. That's definitely possible. It could be uh, differences in non-exercise activity thermogenesis that that could be potentially substantial. Um, I'd have to crunch some numbers to see if that would be even possible to close the entire gap. Um, and of course, it could be a combination of those two factors, which I think would probably be the most likely scenario, uh, in my opinion, because in this study, there was pretty substantial weight loss going on. You look at the diet break group, uh, they lost like, you know, over 15, almost 16 kilograms over the course. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial weight loss attempt. So, uh, that brings us to some of the newer papers. Uh, when you look at these past studies, uh, they were largely carried out in untrained populations, usually with BMIs over 30. Uh, generally, there's kind of a mixture. Some of the studies reported null findings where there just wasn't a big impact either way. Some reported uh, modest positive findings that indicated that diet breaks or refeeds were slightly efficacious. Um, but there were no consistently observed downsides. You know, there, there's, there are not a lot of papers where you can look at it and say, man, doing a diet break, very regrettable based on these results or, you know, the same thing goes with a refeed, but there's kind of a new wave of research in this area that focuses on a different population. It's looking more at, you know, highly active individuals, often resistance trained who, uh, don't have BMIs above 30 who are, are, you know, in the, you know, sub 30 BMI range. And so a lot of people who are using these strategies, uh, kind of fit that mold, right? They might have ah, BMI of 25, 27, 28, whatever. I lift weights frequently. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to lose 16 kilograms. I'm trying to lose a few kilograms. And I think it's valuable to have more data looking at those individuals, uh, because within the fitness space, that's, that's a lot of people who are applying these types of interventions. So there was a paper by Campbell and colleagues, uh, I forget what year it came out. It's, it's not like brand new by any means. We covered it in mass, uh, a volume or two ago, 
but uh, what they had was a, a two-day refeed strategy, um, and uh, they were consecutive days. And it was, uh, I believe, a seven week, six or seven week intervention. And basically, what they found this was a paper that led to a lot of debate because you know there were some uh, things where you'd say, "Oh, it looks like this changed pretty positively in this group, but not in that group." Um, you know, if you look at it, uh, you know, people who are really enthusiastic about refeeds were like, oh man, these are incredibly positive results. But there was really only one outcome, I believe, that had a significant interaction, a statistically significant interaction. And it indicated that uh, implementing these refeeds had a positive effect on the retention of dry fat-free mass, which is kind of like a, a estimate of fat-free mass that aims to correct for total body water changes right so uh when you look at the results you could say like, oh, what if we killed you dissected you removed all of your adipose tissue and turned the rest of your flesh into jerky right yeah but that's not what they did though right right I, yeah. i'm just i'm just saying like conceptually because then i I'd, I'd have to really talk with bill about that yeah that, i, I that mean cool. i i think the the usf ethics board uh might have a problem with that correct uh but you know you look at the results and you'd say okay it looks like a slight edge for the refeeds group when it comes to body composition changes it looks like a slight edge when it comes to the drop in resting metabolic rate uh it was a drop of 38 calories per day in the uh diet break or the refeed group i'm sorry and a drop of 78 in the continuous group. So you could look at that and say, okay, it looks like this is leaning in favor of the refeed group, uh, but it, it's not really a, a slam dunk, right? It, it's not a huge magnitude of effect. Um, and one thing that's really important to highlight here, these are people who were, you know, body fat percentages, the, the group averages were, 18 to 22% in a mixed sample of males and females. So lean individuals, but not shredded. And the, the total amount of weight loss going on here was three, three and a half kilograms. And so when I look at these results, I don't look at them and say, wow, this is a huge impact of refeeds. But I also look at them and say, why would I necessarily expect refeeds to have a huge impact uh, in this particular application? You know, if we're not talking about shredded and we're not talking about huge weight loss, I just don't know if there's enough adaptation there to be really intervening to reverse it. You know, mm -hmm. now there's uh, the ice cap trial by Jackson Pios and colleagues. Um, same kind of deal where, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at uh, a group with an average body fat percentage of 25%. This was a mixed sample, males and females. And what they were looking at here was, uh, I believe it was three weeks of dieting and then one week of a diet break in the diet break group. And then, of course, the, uh, the non-diet break group, the continuous weight loss group, uh, you know, they just went straight through for the entire duration of the trial. Uh, which was, they ended up, both groups were uh, in a calorie deficit for 12 weeks and they both had the same deficit. Uh, it's just the diet break group had that kind of broken up every every fourth week with, with maintenance. Um, basically what they found here, uh, no differences when it came to fat loss, fat-free mass, uh, looked at a bunch of other stuff, uh, muscle strength, 
uh, muscle endurance, resting energy expenditure, leptin, testosterone, uh, sleep, eating disorder behaviors. There was a lot of outcomes that they looked at and the diet breaks didn't seem to do much. Uh, the main thing that they found was that, uh, it did have a small effect, uh, reducing appetite. So adding the diet breaks favorably affected appetite in this particular application. This was once again, a situation where, uh, the individuals in the study were, you know, healthy athletic folks, uh, but they were not like shredded. This wasn't like looking at physique athletes and the overall magnitude of, of weight loss was not particularly large. It's again, we're talking in the, in the ballpark of a few kilograms in total. Uh, and then finally there was uh, kind of a secondary analysis from that same ice cap trial by, uh, Jackson Pios and colleagues. And this actually came out in 2021. It came out a handful of months ago, I think. But they were looking at what actually happens over the course of that one-week diet break. Uh, so they looked at the final diet break in, in the series of diet breaks. And uh, they they did notice that when you look from the beginning of the diet break to the end, over that one-week period, there was improved muscle endurance uh, in the legs. There was increased mental alertness and reduced appetite and reduced irritability. Uh, so you could say even within the broader context of that trial, there were not noteworthy, uh, effects when it came to body composition, performance, things like that. Uh, you could at least say in the short term, you know, mm -hmm. from the beginning of the diet break to the end, these folks were pretty happy. Uh, you know, there were some nice things there when it comes yeah. to appetite, performance, uh, irritability, things like that. So not bad, but, but nothing that's going to really change the trajectory of, you know, a, a short-term intervention. Yeah. And, and more importantly than the actual results of the study, I would say, uh, have you seen pictures of Jackson recently? Uh, I have. He's looking fucking big. Yeah. And that's really all you need to know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would, when big people say stuff, you just kind of do what they say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, no, Jackson's cool. I, I was, uh, I was messaging with him this morning about the study, just getting some clarification. He's, he's awesome. Smart dude. Uh, really on top of it. Yeah. 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 I, uh, th this is, this is completely, uh, off the rails, but, um, yeah, his, his profile picture for a long time was just like him in a hat and an Under Armour hoodie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not one to judge a book by its cover, but I was like, yeah, you know, seems looks, looks like a, a personal trainer type guy seems fairly bright based on what I've seen him posting around the internet. Uh, and just recently, some some progress pics of him uh, popped up on my timeline. I was just like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, why didn't you lead with that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fucking well, big. So he, I, he wanted I, you to take his research seriously, not treat him like a meathead. No, I I understand and appreciate that. But uh, yeah, Jackson, if, if you listen to the podcast, good work, man. Yeah. Uh, so one additional study to uh, to talk about. And. This is the best one by a wide margin. Uh, the most important, the most well done. Totally unrelated. I helped with it. Um, <laughs> but I'm giving you <laughs> I'm giving you an objective assessment. Uh, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Uh, pretty much everybody that's doing this research, uh, you know, I, I, I know people on all these papers. And they're, they're, it's just a bunch of good 
good folks, good researchers who really want to get to the bottom of this stuff. It's, it's a fascinating line of research. Uh, this particular study is not yet published in paper form, but the abstracts are out there, which is why I'm, you know, comfortable talking about the results. Um, but it's by Seedler and colleagues uh, out of Bill Campbell's lab at USF. Um, this particular study uh, recruited 38 resistance trained females. Uh, and basically, it was a 25% reduction in caloric intake to establish the deficit. And it was, you know, one group did six weeks straight of dieting, the other did two weeks of dieting, one week of a diet break, two, one, two, one, two. So everybody, um, what was, uh, you know, had the same deficit, but one, one group had that kind of pattern of diet breaks. Now looked at physiological outcomes, quite a few related to body composition, resting metabolic rate, things of that nature. Um, really nothing, nothing notable to report there. Uh, no meaningful statistically significant outcomes there. Um, there was reduced eating disinhibition. So uh, disinhibition is a loss of control over eating. So uh, the fact that diet breaks decreased eating disinhibition was a positive thing. Um, you know, but that was was pretty much it when we looked at a pretty broad range of physiological outcomes and also outcomes related to eating behaviors. That was the single kind of subscale that was you know statistically significant and did did uh, go in favor of implementing uh, periodic diet breaks. So I think this is a critically important point, uh, and I've already alluded to it previously, but when you look at the diet break and the refeed literature and you say, do I need it? I think these are interventions that are highly specialized. They are targeted interventions that have specific applications, like if you're talking about physiological stuff, they have very specific applications that in my opinion, my hunch is that they have uh, much, I, I think they make much more sense in context where there's a very substantial magnitude of weight loss uh, or the individuals are absolutely shredded. Now, we don't have enough evidence to put it in a huge meta-analysis and say, well, let's look at the little section of 12 studies in shredded people, right? They don't exist. Yeah. We don't have the studies where we can say, let's do a, you know, a meta-regression and look at the change in body weight and see you know, how the effect changes uh, you know, across that spectrum. There's not enough data to look at it and quantitatively you know, really confidently assert like this absolutely is going to have a huge impact in these specific areas. But if you look at the limited data available and you use a little bit of theory behind it, I, I see the most application for these types of interventions in those specific contexts. Now, that doesn't mean you can't use it in other contexts. You know, you might be someone who uh, just because of convenience, you like to have a refeed or two uh, or you enjoy what it brings you in the gym when you know you have a, some extra carbs and some extra calories before a big leg day, uh, or you know it fits your social calendar, it fits your training calendar, uh, it, it fits whatever preference you like. You know that you you absolutely, based on the data we've seen, can apply 
a diet break or a refeed strategy and feel pretty confident that you're going to be looking at no major downside uh, and potential for some upsides with uh, subjective outcomes of like, you know, how, how your appetite feels, maybe uh, just some more positive affect. Um, there, there could be some psychological benefits. There could be some adherence related benefits. Um, the only clear downside that you could really uh, hold against these strategies would be that you're you're losing time, right? So it's, there are a there are some people who, if you told them, "Hey, we're going to increase," you know, the like, let's say you want to do the matador type intervention, yeah. right? Two weeks on, two weeks off. There are a lot of people who, if you said, "Hey, do you want to diet for like 16 weeks or like 32 weeks?" They'd be like, "Yeah, I just want to do it for 16 weeks and get it over with," you know. So. Uh, I think there's a lot of room there to accommodate personal preferences, but I think one of the reasons I wanted to revisit this topic is because the physiology is cool uh, and there is more data. So it's worthwhile to revisit that. And my official perspective on it is that I still think these are interesting strategies for, for very specific applications, but when you look at the studies like Campbell, like Pios, like Seedler and colleagues, when we're looking at fairly moderate body fat ranges and we're looking at fairly modest magnitudes of weight loss, we're talking about a few kilograms here and there, we're not seeing huge physiological effects. In many cases, we're not seeing physiological effects really at all mm -hmm. when it comes to body composition and metabolic rate. Um, so these are interventions, uh, or strategies that are certainly on the table, certainly usable, but by no means, uh, mandatory, you know, uh, I've working with one-on-one -on -one clients. I have some clients that use them, uh, because it fits their preferences and, you know, it makes sense in, in certain applications, but the vast majority of my clients do not use diet breaks or refeeds, uh, aside from just like, Hey, I'm going on vacation. I don't want to be on a diet, you know, and then we talk about some strategies. Yeah. Um, when I diet, I don't use refeeds or diet breaks like for, for bodybuilding competitions for a very nuanced reason being, I don't feel like it. <laughs> and I like to just get where I'm going and it's fine. Uh, because you will find some people like me who, uh, I'll be like, dude, I was used to my, awful diet with low calories that was boring mm -hmm. when i get a day or two days or a week of like hey do you remember what food was like you know you remember like carbohydrate that doesn't do good things for me uh it, for me it's much easier psychologically to just lock in and be like this is what it is no i mean th that makes sense w one of the things that always uh that always amuses me on social media is when someone is clearly getting close to the end of a pretty aggressive cut either they're just trying to lose a, a fair bit of weight or they're trying to get super lean and maybe like a month or two before the end of their cut uh they, they start posting recipe content and it's just like look i figured out a way to make brownies out of protein powder and i swear to god they're as good as real brownies and then like a month after when they're, you know, starting to eat normal food again, they'll be like, 
guys, I just had a real brownie. I, I lied to you a couple yeah. months ago. Those brownies <laughs> fucking sucked. Uh, so I mean, like that's, that's, that's a very fair point. I feel like, uh, if you can forget what good food tastes like, uh, maybe that could help you. So this is a completely serious example. <laughs> uh, you might know what I'm going to say. I, I really believed deep down in my heart that PB2 <laughs> mixed with water was fully indistinguishable from, from peanut butter. And actually, I think I made the argument a few times that it was actually preferable when you balance the flavor and the consistency. I, I believe I argued on behalf of PB2 being a, calories aside, a more enjoyable dietary option than regular peanut butter. On an unrelated note, I hadn't had peanut butter in like a year. Uh, and then I had peanut butter and... I was blown away and I, I had to call a lot of people and apologize uh, and, and correct a lot of statements. But uh, but no, like so these are strategies that in certain applications make sense uh, based on a physiological rationale. You've also made uh, and I think we both know what I'm about to say. You've made similarly bizarre claims about certain styles of lasagna. Uh, no, I stand by those. Well, I, I think you... You've actually been meaning to uh, to recant some lasagna related statements that you've made previously, but we, we, can, we, can, we can move on. Yeah, I'm not there on. yet. Okay. Um, so, is there room in the fitness world for these strategies? Yes, but one of the things I try to be really cautious about when I discuss them is making sure that I'm not over promising. I, I don't want to hype these things up. Uh, if you come to me and you're like you know what? I've been prepping for a bodybuilding show for 34 weeks. Uh, I'm shredded. My calories are so low and I feel very bad. Does a diet break make sense? I'd say, yeah, Let, let's give that a shot. Right. But you know, if you're cutting, you know, I'm just going to use male numbers for ease here, but if you're cutting from 19% body fat to 16% body fat, and uh, taking it nice and slow and steady, and you're like, how much am I missing out on by not having diet breaks or refeeds? Like, probably nothing um, from a physiological perspective. Um, so I, I don't like to overpromise. I, I don't like to hype these things up. I think a lot of people, because they're fascinating from a physiological perspective, and because one of the potential applications that theoretically makes sense. There's a lack of data, but theoretically it makes sense to see these used in people who are shredded, you know, some of the best physiques on the planet. When it's a strategy used by the people with the best physiques, I think that kind of inherently feeds into that hype, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, I see this correlation here. Everybody who looks like, you know, a fitness model seems to be doing it. Yeah. Uh, maybe I ought to give that a shot, which is understandable logic. Uh, but yeah, so I, I don't like to overhype them. I don't like to talk them up too much. They might have some potential in certain situations. They're certainly never a disastrous choice to make. But one of the reasons I bring this up is people have asked a little bit like, now that Macro Factor is out, the diet app, they'll ask, you know, 
what kind of cheat code do I need to put in to unlock the refeed mode? You know, like we don't have dedicated modes of operation where we say, hey, give me the the secret, you know, give me the good stuff. Give me the diet breaks. The reason we don't have that is because, well, there's two reasons. One, don't want to overhype them uh, because for the majority of people in most contexts, they're not going to be tremendously impactful physiologically. Number two, they're so easily achieved without a dedicated mode of operation. It would just serve to make the app unnecessarily more complex to navigate. Yeah. So if you are using macro factor and you say, I want to do a diet break, uh, very, very easy to make that happen. If you're using it, you say, I want to do a refeeding strategy. Once again, tremendously easy to make that happen on uh, collaborative mode. And you can specifically choose how much am I increasing my calories? How much of that's coming from carbohydrate? Am I doing it Tuesday and Friday? Am I doing it Friday and Saturday? Uh, there's so much flexibility there. It's it's very easily done. So so that that kind of clears up. People have been wondering, did you guys forget that refeeds and diet breaks exist? Definitely not. We just didn't want to give them well, their own separate. You, you didn't. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to give them their own separate mode of operation, but they are totally doable. Uh, if you're curious about them, there's no harm in trying them out. But uh, for a lot of people wonder, am I missing out by not having them? And the answer is probably not. Uh, and that is what we call a segue in the entertainment business because we've got a tech support segment. We do. We do have a tech support segment, a new segment on the podcast. First time we did it was last episode. Um, and really, if, if you've been spending time in the macro factor, Facebook group or subreddit, uh, you know what this tech support segment is going to be about. Uh, people love the app, but there is one and only one relatively consistent complaint about it, uh, primarily from people outside of the U S uh, and that is, uh, questions and complaints about the database we use, um, I had every intention of writing an article about this or writing writing an article that was just kind of like FAQs about about the app in general. Uh, and this was going to be included. But then uh, then mass time rolled around. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. you know, I, I figure this is worth discussing and I figure it's worth not waiting another two weeks to discuss. Um, so, yeah, going to talk about it on the podcast as a tech support segment. Um so yeah, uh, the the basic question is, you know, what database are we using and why did we choose it? Uh, even though like product and barcode coverage is somewhat spotty uh, outside of the U.S. So to start with, I, I want to first start by uh, addressing the most negative implication, I think, that often comes along with complaints about the database and that's that, uh, like some people have either implied or just stayed up or just straight up uh, stated that uh, we're kind of typical jingoistic Americans and don't care about the world uh, outside of the U.S. borders. And like, honestly, that's fair. I understand that. Uh, you know, if you've met uh, too many Americans of certain stripes, that's that's not a, uh, <laughs> a completely unreasonable assumption to start with. Uh, but no, that that does not uh, describe us. First, um, 
you can see it in our in the history of, of how we've done business previously. So the Stronger by Science program bundle uh, is very cheap. It's uh, it's ten bucks launched at five bucks, um, and I, I think it's for what it is. It's uh, I, I think it's the cheapest type of product of its kind that you can buy. Uh, and, and one of the major reasons that I made it so cheap, um, was just because I would get a lot of messages, particularly on Instagram from people from lower income countries, um, you know, saying like, Hey, what are, what are some good programs that are out there that I could run? And I'd make some suggestions and they'd be like, Oh, that's like 30 bucks. That's like 50 bucks, 70 bucks, whatever. Uh, you know, that <laughs> that's like a month's pay for me. That's uh, that's ludicrous. Like, I'm sure it's a good program, but I can't afford it. Um, so, I mean, one of the major reasons I made my program so cheap was just so that there could be premium options on the market that would be accessible to like more of the global lifting community. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's something that that is always in mind. Um you know, I, I'm fully aware that the world doesn't end uh, at, at the borders of the U.S. And also, uh, if we did only care about our U.S. audience, that would just be a bad business move. Um, I know our analytics, about 40% of our audience is from the U.S. Uh, and so I think that implies that about 60% is from outside the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, we we care about uh, everyone else. So, um with with that out of the way, uh, you know the basic question is why did we go the direction we went with with our database? And uh, I mean the the basic answer to that question is that when you start looking around at what databases are available to integrate with, um, the the pickings are a bit slimmer than I think people would immediately assume. Um, so like, for example, uh, a lot of people have suggested like, well, why don't you just integrate with my fitness pals database or, uh, like a fair number of Germans have messaged me saying like, well, why don't you integrate with Yazio's database? Uh, and the thing is like, we would fucking love to do that. That would be sick. Um, th they simply aren't options though. Uh, their, their business is their database and allowing other people to access it. Um, would remove a lot of their competitive advantage. So yeah, if we could get access to databases like that, we would love to, uh, and that that would uh, that would be something that we would jump on. But those those simply aren't options that were available out of the gate. Um, so th th there was a pretty long research process, mainly headed up by uh, one of the developers, Corey. Um, where he did a ton of research on what of what databases are actually available to either uh, integrate with via API or to license. And uh, the two best by far were Fat Secret and Nutritionix. Um, there are other databases out there uh, that are are decent but in terms of of a day one database to start with those were the two best uh by by a pretty substantial margin um and they they have their pros and cons so um one of the things that our current uk and australia macro factor users have have asked is, is they've asked about this in particular like other people who've looked into databases 
uh, and they say like, look, you guys are using nutrition X. Um, we have, uh, you know, not wonderful, but considerably better product support from the fat secret database. So why didn't you go with that to start with? Um, and, and there were a few reasons for it. One is that uh, if we went with Fat Secret, that would have improved our product and barcode database on day one uh, for particularly users from, from the UK and Australia. But the thing is, both NutritionX and Fat Secret are, uh, <laughs> are pretty trash outside of US, Canada, uh, UK, and Australia. So like, ultimately, our goal is to have excellent global support for everyone. Um, you know, as it is now, we serve about 5% of the global population very well and about 95% quite poorly. If we went with Fat Secret, we would have served, uh, you know, maybe 6.5% of the global population really well and 93.5% quite poorly. Um, so yeah, for, for UK and Australia, or for, for users from the UK and Australia, uh, fat secret from the jump would have improved things for you personally, but it wouldn't have fundamentally improved our, our global coverage all that much. Um, so that, that would have been an advantage of fat secret, but there are, um, pretty substantial advantages for starting with nutrition X. Uh, two of the biggest ones that I think our users feel the most uh, is one, the NutritionX API offerings are, are just a lot better. So um, one of the features a lot of people like, and one of the features we like for marketing purposes, just because it's very cool, uh, is the AI describe function where you can you know push a button, talk into your mic, say like, I want uh, 200 grams of potatoes and a tablespoon of butter or whatever. And it'll pull those things up for you. Uh, it's very slick. It's very cool. Works quite well. Uh, and that's a that's a nutrition X offering. That's not a feature that we developed. Um, and going with the nutrition X API enabled that for us. Um, so that that's like a neat little bell and whistle. The other, I think, considerably more important factor uh, for going with nutrition X is fat secret functionally doesn't have my, micronutrient support. Uh, I think it, I think it reports fiber. I think it reports sodium. I think it might report alcohol. Uh, but you know, if you want to get into any sort of like relatively in-depth micronutrient tracking, uh, fat secret is severely lacking for that. Um, and that's one of the things that a lot of our users are into. Like we have a fair number of macro factor users who are coming from chronometer, um, and our, our micronutrient support isn't quite as good as chronometers, uh, cause that's the one thing they, they focus on. They are far and away the market leader for that. Uh, but I, I think that we're, um, I, I think that it's very feasible for us to target number two in the, in the micronutrient tracking market, in addition to, to being better than chronometer, several other things. Um, and so anyway, uh, that's something that nutrition X does for us that fat secret wouldn't have. And the other thing is, like I said, for the, the product and barcode support, fat secret would have been a little bit better for the UK and Australia. Um, but the nutrition X database has an excellent, uh, generic foods and in, in the app they're labeled common foods. 
it has an excellent generic foods library, um, which I think Fat Secret does have one as well, but it's not nearly as good. And again, doesn't uh, contain nearly as much micronutrient information. Um, so essentially, we're, we provide excellent barcode and product support to the US and Canada. And then via the Common Foods database from NutritionX, we still provide pretty decent support to everyone else. Uh, it's not quite as convenient as scanning a barcode, but most of the foods that you'd be eating would be in the common foods database. Um, so, you know, it, it was basically a question of, do we provide excellent support to 5% and yeah, pretty decent support to the other 95%? Or do we provide good to excellent support for 7% and pretty shitty support for the other 93%? Uh, and we went with option A. So, um, yeah, to be clear, I do understand why some people from the UK and Australia might be a little bit frustrated, uh, but we weren't just trying to hang you out to dry, uh, a tough choice needed to be made. And we think that the nutrition X database, um, did offer considerable benefits that just weren't present in fat secret. Uh, and the most important thing is that uh, we never intended for the NutritionX database to be our only database offering. Um, so this is, I think, where... Um, yeah, so so th this, I think, will be the answer to the question of, you know, what's going on with our current databases and, and how, do, how do we want to improve it? Um, I, I think this is kind of the question that people have, have been wanting us to answer. Um, so yeah, NutritionX was basically, uh, it was a good day one option because it had API support. And what that means is essentially we can pay per user. So there was a chance that Macro Factor was just going to be a dud, that we'd launch it and people would say like, oh, I'm happy with the app that I'm currently using. I don't feel the need to uh, to, to get this new app. Uh, and you know, so if if the launch wouldn't have gone have gone well, uh, being able to pay per user would be incredibly clutch because essentially that would mean that we wouldn't have risked uh, in ending up just losing a ton of money. Um, however, uh, there are other databases that you you don't just integrate with via API and pay per user per database query. Uh, there are other databases out there that you can license, um, which essentially means instead of paying per user, you just pay, uh, a, you just write a pretty fat check up front uh, and then generally have to pay like a flat rate yearly, um, which would have involved taking on a ton of risk before we launched the app in the first place. Um, but there are some databases like that that will allow us to expand our coverage uh, throughout the rest of the world. And so um, with that in mind, I'm not going to say what it is yet, but we do have a database in mind uh, that we are actively doing research on. In fact, just this past week, uh, I put out a call in the Facebook group and subreddit and uh, about 300 people have been going out around the world, um, testing out this new database for us. Uh, I've been I've been gathering the feedback and collating it. Uh, and so I'm not going to say what it is yet, but what I will say 
is that uh, the results are in and the picture it paints is pretty clear. Uh, so we already have excellent support for the US and Canada. Adding this new database will give us very, very good support in the UK, Ireland, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and the rest of the world. Let's just say it's it's mixed uh, to to put it um, to put it politely. So, for European users, for example, uh, one person from Malta randomly had great luck with it. Uh, a few people from Norway and Finland have had good luck with it. Um, but in that same general part of the world, people from Sweden and Denmark have had very bad results with it. Um, but anyway, it, it will be an enormous improvement for people from the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and will probably be uh, a small improvement for uh, for people elsewhere. Um, so to be clear, uh, we never we so we're going we're approaching macro factor with a pretty long-term roadmap in mind uh the the product support that you're currently experiencing with with the app is our day one product support um but our intention is and has always been to provide excellent product and barcode support uh globally um, and it's just that, you know, be, be, because the product wasn't on the market yet, we were just limited in terms of what we could offer on day one. Uh, but we are currently in the in the research and planning stages for uh, improving that substantially for a, a pretty good chunk of our users. Uh, I don't want to commit to a timeline yet, but but relatively soon. Um, and our, our plan is to get there for everyone. In the meantime, um, in the meantime, uh, just to circle back, uh, I mentioned that NutritionX has uh, excellent has an excellent common foods library. Uh, I think it's like 15, 16,000 foods, give or take, and and these are like staple products. So you know, various meats, various grains, fruits, vegetables, dairy products, etc. Um, most of the just kind of like basic foods that people eat around the world are in the nutrition X common foods library. Uh, and those are the foods that have the best overall, uh, nutrition reporting. So, um, if you're someone who does like to track micronutrients or, you know, let's say you're a vegetarian or vegan and you want to make sure you're getting, uh, all of your essential amino acids and just all of the amino acids, period. Uh, you would need to be logging common foods anyways because uh, branded products, like products you'd find by scanning a barcode, generally have pretty bad micronutrient reporting. And that's not a nutrition X drawback. That's just a, a regulations drawback. Uh, the government doesn't require, say, Tyson's Tyson Foods to report all of the micronutrients in every chicken product it sells but the just standard chicken entries in the nutrition X common foods database do have that information. Uh, so, you know, like I said, nutrition X has a, has a good uh, common foods library. That's already what you would need to be logging if you want a good micronutrient support. Uh, and that's personally how I use the app already. I would say I open the barcode scanner on my app 
maybe once a week. Uh, and it's always just to scan different energy drinks. I don't know why. I never use the barcode scanner for anything except when I go to the gas station and get an energy drink. For whatever reason, when I want to log that, I just always go to the barcode scanner for it, which is weird. Uh, I have no idea why that behavior pattern exists. I do. Why? At that point, you're so depleted of energy. Oh, you're that's... Like, I, I couldn't even fathom typing in a few letters so that it will show up in my search that, history. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I like to imagine you kind of just like crawling up to the counter with it. Like, please give me this drink. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> that's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, anyway, all of which is to say, if you live somewhere that the NutritionX database doesn't currently cover with barcode and branded product support, uh, or if you live somewhere that uh, when we add this new database into the mix, if you still live somewhere where you still won't have excellent uh, branded product and barcode support, your experience with Macro Factor is still virtually identical to mine. Um, and you know what? I, I hadn't planned on doing this, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little bit crazy on air uh, on a hot mic. Until we add this next database into the mix, I will not use the barcode scanner in Macro Factor. That, that again, to be clear, that's a very small sacrifice because I basically <laughs> never use it in the first place. Uh, but until we get this new database added, uh, my experience with the app will be identical to your experience with the app. Um, that, that is a pledge that, that I feel incredibly comfortable making to everyone out there. Um, cause yeah, I mean, we, th there are already a lot of little bells and whistles in macro factor that make it pretty convenient to log food. Even if you never open the barcode scanner, uh, the common foods, uh, library is very good. Um, the smart history is very good. Like that, that's one thing to note. If you use the barcode scanner, can't find anything and you're just like, ah, this is, a waste of my time. I'm going to log in some other app and port my data over. Um, I would recommend just giving it a shot for a week or two. The smart history in macro factor really is just insanely convenient. If you keep a pretty standard schedule and eat, a, uh, you know, a, a small to moderate variety of foods over time, uh, pretty often you'll just go into the food logger uh, your smart history will already be pulled up. Those are foods that you commonly eat around a particular time of day. And you just click on it. Like you don't, you don't even have to search for anything. Once you get a, once you've used the app for a week or two and you have a pretty well populated smart history, uh, there would be no, no need to even open up <laughs> the, the barcode scanner in the first place. Cause most of the stuff you'd be looking for is just sitting right there for you to tap on it. Uh, and then there's good copy and paste features, very quick, very seamless. Um, so yeah, I mean, ind independent of never using the barcode scanner, I barely even use the search bar because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I would say maybe five times a week I consume something that's not already in my smart history. And I, I do uh, eat from a relatively small pool of foods um, and, and I do pretty heavy meal prepping. So I'm, you know, using the search bar quite a bit on Sunday while I'm cooking a big batch of food. And then I can just go to my recipes. And that's, that's mostly what I'm logging from throughout the week. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
what I would say, and I, I'm sure this comes across as a sales pitch, but I swear to God, this is how I use the app myself. Um, you you can you can get a long way and have a pretty seamless food logging experience without ever worrying about the barcode or branded products database. And to be clear, uh, if if your preferred mode of interaction with a tracking app is to be able to scan barcodes, I completely understand that. And I'm not saying I don't use that, therefore you should not expect it. Um, you know, like we, we want to meet the needs of everyone using the app. And if that is how you prefer to interact with a food tracking app, uh, we have every intention of delivering that to you. Uh, but for the time being, like, just give it a shot for a week or two. Uh, use the search bar, use the common foods, uh, get your smart history populated. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at uh, how comfortable the food logging experience is already, even if we don't have a, a good barcode database in, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, between the copy and paste feature and the smart history feature, I, I never use the barcode. Uh, but one caveat or warning, I guess, about the smart history feature is that it will hold up a mirror and teach you things about yourself <laughs> that cannot be unseen. Uh, there have been a that couple <laughs> a couple instances of people who open up the app at two in the morning and it's like, want some ice cream? And they're like, no, I was going to have carrots, but... I mean, yeah, maybe I'll have some ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of knows like what time of day, what you're going for. Um, but no, I mean, the smart history and the copy paste are, are really clutch. Yeah. Yeah. My 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 smart history at like 10, 11, that's, that's generally around the time I'm eating my first meal of the day. So it's just like, hey, do you want to eat the thing that you've meal prepped recently? And it's like, yes, macro factor, I do. Thank you. <laughs> and then uh, around 4.30, it's like, oh, hey, uh, you're probably eating a snack before you go play basketball. Do you want to eat the things you typically snack on to fuel up for basketball? It's like, yeah, thanks. I, I do. I, I very much like that. Uh, then around dinner time, it's like, hey, you know, you, you eat eh, pretty consistently about four various meats and three or four carb sources and five or six vegetables. Eh, just scroll down the list, like tap what you're eating uh, for dinner tonight. And uh you know, you'll be good to go. I'm like, thank you. That's that's exactly what I needed. And then I'm working late at night and, uh, you know, I'm uh, going to eat a snack at like 3 a.m. And I'm, maybe I've already gotten the snack and maybe it's something that that's perfectly healthy. I'm eating an apple or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> I open up the app. I go to add something to the plate. And it's like, do you want cookies? Do you want ice cream? Uh do you do you want to eat two cups of craisins? <laughs> I'm like, ah, not this time, but but I, I appreciate the offer. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, if you so okay. Here's what I'll say: if you do eat a super wide variety of foods, like if you go back and look at what you ate in the past week and you consumed, um, I don't know, like. 50 or 60 different discrete food products. Um, I, I could very much understand why uh, branded product and barcode support would matter quite a bit more. Um, especially if, if, you know, you're eating 40 different food products within a single meal slot, 
such that you wouldn't be going back to a lot of the same things fairly consistently for your smart history. Um, but yeah, I mean, if your if your breakfasts often look fairly similar and your lunches often look fairly similar, I think a lot of people have more variety at dinners. Uh, but yeah, smart. I swear to God, the smart history works so well. Uh, I think for the vast majority of people, two meals out of the day, you won't you won't even need to tap the search bar, much less the uh, much less the barcode scanner. Once that smart history gets populated, so if you can deal with a little bit of friction for a week or two, um, I I really do think the food logging experience is already pretty darn good for the vast majority of people. Um, but you know to to bring to bring us back to where this tech support segment started, uh, especially for people in the UK, Australia, Ireland, New Zealand. Uh, the the branded product and barcode support uh, in the not too distant future is going to get a lot lot better. Yeah, cool. All right, we are a bit behind schedule. I'm going to do my Q and A rapid fire. Let's do it. Q and A segment. You guys ask questions, uh, and we give answers to the best of our ability. So I've got a question from Kevin. Uh, we've got a scenario on vacation, not doing structured exercise. How bad could weight gain slash muscle loss be if I acted like a degenerate for two weeks? Um, and so there, there's basically two questions here. Uh, talking about a two-week time frame, muscle loss, and also weight gain or specifically fat gain uh, if it's happening in the context of muscle loss. When it comes to the muscle loss, uh, one to two weeks really is not a big deal. Uh, significant appreciable muscle loss really shouldn't occur over that one to two week time frame. Uh, as long as you're not like immobilized or on complete bed rest. Uh, you know, if you're going about your day to day activities, one to two weeks is not a timeline that I would be super concerned about. Uh, once we start getting to the like two to three, three to four week time frame, then I start to say, Okay, now we might want to talk about some pretty uh, proactive mitigation strategies to to make sure that we're maintaining as much muscle mass as we can. Uh, so, what might that strategy be? Not just overfeeding protein. Uh, the, the research is pretty consistent. Uh, just bumping up your protein over a vacation if you're not actually loading your muscles um, is not going to save you from muscle loss. Um, if anything, your protein needs could potentially be a little bit lower since you're not training, but usually I just try to keep my protein pretty stable uh, in this type of scenario. There are some studies indicating that like really high dose leucine might be slightly helpful, uh, but I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. Uh, the evidence is mixed. The effect sizes are not particularly large. So uh, the strategy really isn't dieting in this, in this scenario when it comes to retaining muscle. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, three, four weeks or longer, uh, it's important to recognize a little bit of resistance training goes a very long way. We're talking about body weight stuff. If you can sneak a couple bands in your travel bag, um, very basic stuff, even if you don't have gym access should go a very long way and it doesn't have to be high volume. If you keep the intensity up, you know, either doing high loads if they're if they're available or just pushing relatively close to failure with body weight and band type stuff. You don't have to spend two hours a day doing this stuff. Low volume, but putting in the effort uh, should be a good way to go. 
when it comes to fat gain, uh, I mean, to to gain a, a considerable amount of fat, like if you're trying to gain a kilogram of fat, assuming that there's no adaptive increase in total daily energy expenditure from overfeeding, and there very well might be. Or just from being on vacation and walking around doing vacation stuff. Yeah, so total daily energy expenditure very well could go up in this uh, situation, but even if it didn't, we're talking about over 9,000 calories of a surplus to store a new kilogram of fat. Um, so, I mean, if you're going way overboard with uh, your caloric intake, I mean, no doubt some degree of fat accumulation can occur, um, but it's nothing that can't be undone uh, after the vacation's over. And the likelihood of, you know, several kilograms of fat mass gain, uh, quite implausible within this type of time frame. Um, so my typical guidance, uh, by the way, your weight will likely fluctuate quite a bit, uh, especially if you're, you're kind of really exploring a lot of different food options and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Eating is one of my favorite things about vacations. Um, but there's a lot of water weight fluctuation, uh, you know, changing your food schedule, changing your food environment, different amount of just bulk material in the GI tract, different amount of sodium and carbohydrate. A lot of water fluctuations, but, uh, you know, in terms of fat gain, probably not too much, uh, accumulation there. My typical guidance though, uh, when I work with one-on-one -on -one clients who are about to go on a one or two week trip, uh, we basically set a spectrum with two anchors. Uh, so on one end of the spectrum, the really strict end of the spectrum, we say, oh, let's keep our diet exactly the same. No accommodations, hit the same targets, weigh things the same way you normally do or track things the same way you normally do no change at all. The other end of the spectrum is we're not just going off the diet. We are intentionally aggressively indulging. You know, we are really just exploring every culinary option and just overfeeding on a very consistent basis. Um, no targets, no tracking, no moderation. You know, if there's a, a hedonic occasion to eat, go for it, you know, past the point of fullness. Now, we rarely choose either of those options. That sets the spectrum, and then we talk about a variety of different options uh, that fall between those ends of the spectrum. So uh, we could keep macro targets as a strategy, but we could increase the targets from where they're currently at. We could keep a calorie target and a protein minimum, but say, hey, as long as you're kind of close to these calories and getting at least this much protein, you're good to go. We could not track at all. But say, hey, focus on, you know, food selection and meal composition. So when you sit down for a meal, where's my protein? Where's my fibrous vegetable? Arrange a plate and kind of focus on it that way. Uh, one thing I'll do is I'll say pick one meal per day where we're really going to loosen up. So, you know, keep things pretty, uh, pretty tight with breakfast and lunch. And then dinner will be the big meal where we really relax a little bit. Uh, a similar strategy prioritize the areas where you want to indulge, right? So if you want to go out for drinks one night, you know, if, if I'm on vacation, trying to be mindful of my diet, I'll say, you know what, tonight I am having a few alcoholic beverages. So I might keep my entree, you know, a little bit leaner, you know, go with lean, you know, fish and vegetables and maybe a little starch and then save up some calories so that I can have a little more alcohol. Uh, or, you know, you could say, I'm going to, go a little lighter on the entree because I really like a dessert that I have my eye on or vice versa. I'm going to skip dessert because I, you know, see this particular entree that, that has caught my eye. So there are 
a tremendous number of dietary strategies that you could choose ranging from very restrictive to very flexible. And what I do with my clients is I talk through a, a pretty broad variety of these and we figure out based on the context of the trip, what would be the most sensible solution. The next one, next question uh, from Adam, thoughts on high sodium for strength sports. Um, this has become pretty popular. Um, a lot of people going a little higher with their sodium intake, hoping for some performance improvements. The RDA uh, or the recommended intake in the States, last time I checked, I think was like to keep it under 2,300 milligrams a day. So under like 2.3 grams a day. Seems very plausible. Uh, and it's very clear why that's set. Hypertension is prevalent. Uh, some people are pretty salt sensitive. You know, when salt or sodium goes up in their diet, blood pressure tends to increase a little bit. And so, you know, the, the recommended intake is largely focused on trying to manage hypertension rates in the segment of the population that is a little bit sensitive to dietary sodium. Now, the RDA is not necessarily for optimal performance for athletes, and that's something we always have to consider. Uh, we do lose sodium when we sweat, so higher salt intakes may be tolerated well by some athletes and in some cases might actually be necessary. So not just well tolerated, but actually beneficial, uh, depending on, you know, your rate of sweat, uh, sweat loss, the concentration of your sweat, which does vary. Um, and so the, the reason that this is important for athletes is because sufficient sodium levels help us maintain plasma volume, uh, help encourage us to continue drinking fluids. Uh, so sometimes you'll see in sport nutrition strategies, they'll add some sodium to the sports beverage, not because you necessarily need sodium replacement, but because they want you to continue having a thirst response and continue <laughs> drinking more and more fluid throughout the. Doesn't it also just hydrate you a little bit faster though? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. But, but sometimes the, uh, they'll specifically kind of highlight uh, that extra sodium. I mean, it, it absolutely, it does help hydrate you a little bit more than just a water solution. Yeah. Uh, so there are multifaceted benefits, but, uh, for th there's a lot of athletes who will dehydrate themselves cause they just don't feel like drinking water. Mm -hmm. And so a nice sports beverage with some sodium and some sugar and things like that, it tastes good. It encourages that thirst response. And the fact that it also hydrates them better is like, Oh, terrific. But we really just need them to keep coming back for more cups of beverage, you yeah. know? So, uh, anyway, absolutely maintaining sufficient sodium levels, uh, and drinking a sodium beverage during uh, particular types of exercise can be a good strategy for, uh, replacing the sodium that's lost from sweat, encouraging thirst response and more fluid intake and maintaining hydration. But, um, this is particularly important when it comes to exercise that involves high sweat rates. Uh, so if you're lifting in a climate controlled gym, probably doesn't matter a ton depending on how much you typically sweat and how hot it is in the gym. Um, now if you're in like a, you know, if it's like a Ronnie Coleman training video from back in the day, uh, Texas, right? Yeah. So you're, you know, in the middle of Texas, it's yeah, I, July. I think he trained at Metroflex Houston. Yeah. So if it's, if it's July in Houston and there's no air conditioner, yeah, you, 
you're probably losing some sweat, probably losing some sodium. Uh, so some degree of replacement might might be warranted there. But when we talk about the idea of sodium and actually enhancing performance, uh, the only studies where I've seen that really happen is performance of tasks in situations where uh, hydration status is truly threatening performance. So uh, if, if you're doing an endurance type exercise that involves high cardiac output, it's in the heat, it's prolonged duration. Those are instances where you might find a performance benefit if you're comparing a water solution to uh, a solution with some degree of sodium in it. Um, now, it is true mechanistically that sodium plays a role in muscle contraction, but uh, we got to pause before we say, therefore, more sodium, more contraction, very strong. The body has very robust mechanisms to maintain stability within a certain range when it comes to, to blood sodium levels. Um, and that's because sodium and potassium are very important. Uh, so that, that's not the type of thing that your body likes to lose track of. Um, and, you know, of course, with really substantial, with great enough sodium losses, at some point, those mechanisms could be unable yeah. to maintain appropriate levels of sodium and potassium. But well, I mean, the, the same, uh, the same sodium and potassium related, uh, like mechanisms of, um, like muscle membrane <laughs> depolarization, that's the same thing that goes on with like nerve depolarization. Yeah. So it, as long as your nerves work, your muscles are probably going to work <laughs> just fine. Yeah. And you, you should, it, it, at least like with regards to, to electrolyte balance. Yeah. And you do want your nerves working. Yeah. Always Correct. when possible. Um, so like, you know, there was a study by the general point here is, if your sodium levels in your blood are getting low enough that muscle contraction is being impacted, you are screwed. Yeah. That is not a good spot to be. Uh, so it's not that, you know, the lifter. I, I mean, I don't even know that you would get there. Th this, this is complete speculation. I haven't thought about it that much. But uh, I mean, like endurance athletes that die of hyponatremia are aren't they generally still running when their brain swells up and they die? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I think their muscles are still functioning well enough to keep them moving while their sodium levels are from a nervous system perspective already dangerously, dangerously low. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of think that, uh, if sodium levels are already low enough that they're affecting muscle contractility, you, you got a big fucking problem on your hands yeah. and you probably will have noticed it already because you'll, I mean, you'll be getting delirious. Yeah. So I, I did find a study looking at this, uh, title was impact of hyponatremia on nerve conduction and muscle strength by Vandergeinst and colleagues. Um, chronic mild to moderate hyponatremia, like clinical hyponatremia, uh, did not have an impact on muscle strength within that study. And these were not particularly healthy folks within this study. Um, so the the overall conclusion here, uh, it's not that, you know, taking a big spoonful of sodium is going to supercharge your workout or anything like that. Um, that would not be an accurate representation of the data that I've seen personally. Always, always open to reviewing new studies that I'm may not be aware of, of course. 
Um, but the general idea is you just want to keep your, your sodium and potassium levels within uh, healthy, viable ranges. And it usually doesn't take a, a tremendous amount of effort to do that. If you are exercising and losing a lot of sweat and your sweat has particularly high concentrations of sodium, a uh, little bit of sodium replacement might not be a terrible idea, but uh, you probably don't need a super nuanced, uh, deliberate strategy to do any type of sodium loading for performance or anything like that. Um, now, another question here, last one I'm going to do. Uh, can athletes also from Adam, by the way, can athletes get around the negative effects of high sugar consumption because they are more active? Uh, the short answer is yes. So a lot of the meta, like cardio metabolic concerns about sugar are largely related to very high intakes of fructose aside from just being in very positive energy balance. Uh, but fructose does get a little bit more consideration, a little bit more attention because fructose is metabolized uh, differently than other monosaccharides. So fructose uh, is mostly metabolized in the liver, which can definitely cause some issues. Uh, and one of the issues is there's kind of just like this bottleneck effect of all these substrates going to the liver. Um, you know, just this overload of you know, carbohydrate and de novo lipogenesis occurring there and uh, being in an, in an energy surplus with a tremendous amount of fructose, that's all kind of going to the liver and not causing uh, great things when it comes to cardiometabolic health. Um, now, the reason I bring that up is because if you are physically active and exercising, uh, you know, when we look at sedentary folks that are on a a very high fructose diet, we will see hepatic de novo lipogenesis. So de novo lipogenesis in the liver. We'll see increases in uh, fat storage within the liver. Um, we'll see increases in blood trigly uh, triglyceride concentrations uh, and uh, also an impairment of insulin sensitivity. So those are the types of cardiometabolic issues that we're looking at. That's in sedentary folks who are in positive energy balance with a, a pretty notable influx of really deliberately high fructose. If you are active exercising, that is clearing a lot of those substrates out of your liver. There's a lot of energy flux going on. Substrates are coming in. They're being utilized. That's a good thing. Substrates come in. Substrates go out. Can't explain that. You can't. Uh, and, and I won't. But... There, there is a study um, that, that kind of looked at this exact question. Um, and if anything, the study undersells uh, the safety mechanisms for the typical healthy, active person. But the study was by Smajus and colleagues in 2020, titled Metabolic Effects of a Prolonged, Very High-Dose uh, Dietary Fructose Challenge in Healthy Subjects. And that's when you know that it's a pretty serious intervention when they're not even calling it a high fructose diet, it's a high fructose challenge. That means the fructose is pretty high. So in this particular study, they were looking at 150 grams of fructose daily, which would be like 300 grams of table sugar on a daily basis, uh, the, the fructose equivalent. Uh, looked at 10 healthy subjects um, after eight weeks of adhering to this. That's a, it's a pretty substantial amount of time That's to have. That's a lot to have that much fructose. And these are, are healthy folks, but they're not like 
you know, running 15 miles a week or anything like that. Just healthy folks who are not deliberately eating in a, you know, a, a caloric surplus and basically body weight decreased slightly during the study. Uh, none of the outcomes they looked at related to uh, the liver or metabolic health were significantly impacted uh, in a negative way. So if, if you have, um, you know, if your body composition is within a healthy range for you and you're uh, quite active and you're not in a large energy surplus, you know, dealing with sugar, even if it's pure fructose in this example, doesn't seem to be uh, much of a challenge at all. It doesn't seem to be much of a problem. So uh, for someone who's relatively lean and exercising regularly, uh, it, it is really not something that is worth uh, being too concerned about as long as sugar is not displacing other important stuff from your diet. But, you know, the, the anecdotal evidence for this is quite abundant as well. Um, I don't know many people who have more sugar than the typical endurance athlete who's putting in pretty high mileage. Um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of endurance athletes coming in with, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or, you know, metabolic syndrome or, or things like that. So absolutely, uh, if you're active and especially if you maintain relatively lean body composition and you're not in a huge caloric surplus, uh, you can certainly get around some of those negative effects of high sugar consumption. Makes sense. Yeah, you uh, you said you were going to knock out those Q&As pretty quickly, and you uh, weren't completely honest about that, but I will try to succeed where you failed. Uh, I also have several questions to address, and I'll try to be snappy. So uh, this first one, I I'm not going to say who posted it because I'm going to be somewhat critical of the question itself, uh, and so I don't want to put this person on blast. Uh, but the question was... Um, I'm a fitness instructor. I have a client. Um, I put them in a calorie deficit, but they're not losing weight. Is this because they're lying to me? Um, and so first off, uh, shout out to uh, Stronger by Science Facebook community member, Matt Cottrell, uh, who already uh, did, I, I think, a pretty good job in the group of answering this person's question. Uh, and pointing out why uh, assuming that they're lying isn't the most uh, useful or productive framework. Um, but yeah, so uh, to to address this question, first off, I, uh, I disagree with the premise uh, if they're not losing weight, assuming that there's not some sort of... Um, some sort of disease state going on where maybe they're experiencing massive fluid retention, uh, independent of energy balance related weight regulation. So for, for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time, uh, if they're not losing weight, they probably are not in fact in an energy deficit. Um, so the, the question was, uh, you know, are they lying about what they're eating? Um, and I think most of the time they're, they're probably not, uh, and that there are several, um, that there are several ex potential explanations for why this person isn't losing weight beyond, uh, assuming dishonesty. So the first is, you know, this individual could just have uh, lower energy expenditure than would be predicted. Um, you know, if, if you put their, uh, sex, height, weight, 
activity level in a formula and it says like, ah, their maintenance is probably about 2,500 calories. And you say like, okay, uh, let's, let's have a nice modest deficit. Let's go 2,200 calories and they're not losing weight. It very well could just be that their energy expenditure is 2,200 calories and not 2,500. So, you know, when you're dealing with a modest intended deficit, there is a chance that they're actually eating exactly what you ask them to. Um, but they're not actually in a deficit because their energy expenditure is a little, is a little bit lower than you would predict. Um, another uh, pretty common possibility, and I think this is probably the most, I, I think this is probably the issue that a lot of personal trainers or nutrition coaches run into, especially uh, if they're working with gin pop clients, is that uh, they think that they're eating what you've asked them to, but they're just not doing a great job of tracking things. So maybe they're eyeballing their measurements. Um, maybe that maybe there are things that they're just simply not tracking. So, you know, for example, uh, if you make some eggs and you throw a little bit of oil in the pan, like, ah, you track the eggs, wasn't much oil. I don't need to track that. Uh, put a little bit of cream in your coffee. Like, ah, it was just a splash. Like it's fine. I don't, I don't want to measure that small amount of cream. I'm sure it's okay. Throw a little bit of dressing on your salad, especially if it's a light dressing, like, ah, do I really need to worry about tracking it? Uh, so just little inaccuracies and things that aren't tracked throughout the day can add up to to several hundred calories. So again, if someone was intended to be in a relatively modest deficit, it could just be that that they think they're being completely honest with you and and accounting for all of the major things they need to account for, but they they're just having issues with tracking and. Uh, you know, you, you can address that with them just via some education, like ask like, hey, are you tracking the dressing you put on your salad or, you know, whatever else? Um, and that, for, that's a common thing in research, by the way, is, um, you know, they'll they'll get the food diary from the individual and then do kind of a guided interview. And they'll say, oh, I noticed you had cereal for breakfast this day. No milk. And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Th they will go through and be like. A plain hot dog, no no condiments on that. You know, so they, they'll go through it much like you just described. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, I, I think in excess of 80% of the time, if someone swears up and down that they're eating what you ask them to um, and, you know, they should be losing weight, but they're not, it, it's all, it often just comes down to inaccurate tracking, which, you know, you don't have to assume that someone is being dishonest if they're tracking inaccurately because without a bit of education, I think just naturally most people don't do a great job of tracking. Um, and that's, you know, that's the standard state of things and it's a okay. And it's, it's on you as a trainer to, to teach them those skills. Um, a, another pretty common thing that could be happening is uh, if someone doesn't have a habit of tracking nutrition, they could just be eating things, not thinking about it and not tracking it. Uh, and again, that doesn't imply dishonesty. I, I think it's a relatively common, a relatively common habit uh, when you first start tracking to associate pulling out your phone or, or pulling out the paper you're uh, writing your food diary on. Uh, when you're about to sit down to a meal and you kind of associate those two things. Uh, but you know, if you just like pop into a bodega on on the way home and just like grab grab a little snack. It, it may just not occur to you 
that you ate something, you know, it, it could just be such a part or like if someone brings donuts into the office, like if you're not already kind of in the mode of like, oh, if I consume something, I'm going to track it. It, it could just be a matter of people eating without thinking about it and not logging it if, if this is a relatively new habit to them. Um, and then another very common thing is uh, people going off script on their diet. I don't want to say that uh, they're having a cheat meal because I think the word cheat uh, has some moral implication that uh, it might be undeserved. But, you know, they go off script and they think like, ah, I only went a little bit off script, but they actually went quite a bit further off script than they realized. Uh, and again, that's that's not dishonesty. That's uh, just simply not doing a great job of accounting for how off script you went. Uh, and in my in my experience, the biggest culprit there is drinks. Like if you go out, you get some drinks at the bar. Um, man, you you can put down a thousand calories of alcohol pretty quickly, <laughs> and uh, since it goes down smooth, you're like ah maybe four hundred calories. But I mean that six hundred calorie gap is is a pretty big gap. Uh, so yeah, th there are a lot of possibilities where. Um, this individual thinks that they're uh, eating about what they were assigned to eat and they are being honest when they say they think they're sticking to the plan pretty well. Um, but, but they're just not for those reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I think that those are things that you should explore with, with this client um, and don't necessarily assume they're being dishonest. I, I mean, if you've coached enough people, you will, you will get some, uh, just very dishonest clients from time to time. Uh, and I mean, you'll just deal with dishonest people in life from time to time. But in, in my experience, that shit's pretty rare. Like most people, especially if they're paying you for a service, they're not just going to like purposefully straight up lie to your face uh, because doing so is wasting their money. Uh, it's, like, it's like going into the doctor for a problem and they're like, do you have any symptoms? No. Yeah. Not yeah. at all. It's like, well, if you don't tell me like, I can't help, you know, like, yeah, no, like no one's going to do that intentionally. Like most people are fundamentally pretty honest and they can relay inaccurate information without lying, you know, like, and, and so this brings me to a meta point kind of underpinning this question. Uh, I think that there's a general tendency to think um, if I said, or if I did what this other person is saying or doing, I would be dishonest if I did that. Um, but a, an assumption there is like you're maybe being empathetic in a negative way. You're putting yourself in someone's shoes, assuming that they know what you know, um, which sometimes isn't a good assumption to make. Uh, so to, to move past the coaching point, I, I see this a lot of times when, when folks are discussing, say, content they come across on the internet or on social media, and it's like, oh, like, so-and-so is just lying to their audience for the clout or to make profit or whatever. And like, I don't know, there's plenty of that. I'm sure that, I'm sure that it occurs. But uh, I, think a lot of, I think a lot of that comes down to the thought process of, if I was saying what this other person was saying, I would know that I was making incorrect statements and therefore I would be lying. And therefore this other person is lying. Uh, when I think more often than not, it's just people who are either uninformed or misinformed uh, who are spreading misinformation, but they, they think they're being honest about it. Um, like they, they don't realize that they're uh, 
relaying false information to people. Uh, and so I, I think that that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, and, and when someone does or says something that would imply that you personally would be acting in bad faith if you said or did the same thing, that doesn't necessarily imply that the other person is acting in bad faith because they may just not know what you know. One thing to add. Yeah. My, the classic thing that gets overlooked. So like, you know, condiments, dressings, oh, yeah, yeah. those are classics. If your client has children, extra bites of food that the kids didn't eat. Oh, yeah. That is a classic that a lot of people forget when they're going through with a client. If your client has kids, that should be item number one. Very common. Here's another one. Uh, I don't know how common this is outside of the South, but um, in talking about nutrition with Southern individuals who are, say, eh, 55, 60 plus, and to be clear, I'm not talking shit about the South. I was born and raised in the South. Uh, love it dearly. But uh, man, a lot of older Southern people, and I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but a lot of older Southern people simply don't realize that beverages have calories. Like y you would be shocked at the number of, you know, Southern women, Southern gentlemen in their 60s or 70s who subsist solely on a like all of the liquid they consume is soft drinks or coffee with a bunch of cream and sugar in it. And it just doesn't occur to them that those calories really matter. Like yeah. if, if, if you're not chewing it, it doesn't really have calories, does it? Uh, and that's, I mean, that's <laughs> again, I don't know the degree to which that generalizes, well. but uh, in, at least a particular region of the United States that that might be something to bring up with people. <laughs> and I can tell you now I'm a Southern gentleman. I've been here for long enough to call myself that. But when I first moved to the region and I, I first watched someone make sweet tea. Oh, hell yeah. Sweet tea in the Southern region of the United States is it's the only place you can get sweet tea, the real sweet tea. Well, it's like a modern Marvel. It's, it's an innovation. There is yeah. no way to get more sugar suspended into a liquid solution. Correct. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. If someone said they made sweet tea, but they didn't add the sugar when the water was still boiling, they did not make sweet tea because yeah. without the water currently being boiling, <laughs> It cannot accept enough sugar to qualify a sweet tea. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, uh, you know, if, if someone says something that you that would be a lie if you said it, don't necessarily assume that it's a lie because they said it because uh, they may not know what you know. All right, moving on. Uh, speaking of which, I've already lied. Uh, I said I was going to be quick. That wasn't that quick. Uh, okay, Dominic Canizaro asks. Uh, simple question. Uh, recognizing needs will vary by person. How critical is adequate sleep to gains, to body comp? And are negative effects more acute or chronic? There's no shortage of fear-mongering and quote-unquote common wisdom out there, but a lot of quote-unquote general sleep data uh, has had doubt cast upon it. Uh, he's referencing Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, in particular there. Um we we've discussed that book on the podcast before and how uh it's it's a little bit sketchy uh i don't remember what episode check it out in the archives um someone uh, published uh a 
very, very, very thorough critique of, of it. Just the first chapter. Of just the first chapter. <laughs> yeah, saying, it was, eh, it was like a 12,000 word article that was just like, let's go through these claims one by one. And just, I think he planned on fact checking the entire book. And he just found so much bullshit in just the first chapter. It was basically just like, I think I've made my point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, how, how much does sleep matter for um, gains and body comp? And uh, to what degree are the effects acute versus chronic? So the thing about sleep research is where if you're attempting to draw inferences, you're generally attempting to draw inferences based on two types of data, either um, either just like correlational data where on the population level, do we consistently see differences between people who sleep more, sleep less, uh, or um, like longitudinal cohort studies where you look to see over time, do we see uh, diff different changes in various regards for the people who sleep more or sleep less within the cohort, um, which, you know, that's obviously not tremendously high quality evidence because there could be plenty of confounders, which maybe you try to control for statistically. That's not quite as good as running an RCT or, you know, maybe they're just confounders that you either don't think about or just are unable to attempt to control for statistically. So, you know, th that's not uh, a lack of evidence, but that is uh, relatively low quality evidence on kind of the, the hierarchy of evidence. Or the other type of research you'll see uh, are RCTs or crossover studies that are very short term. So, you know, maybe a sleep deprivation study or a sleep restriction study that runs for like two weeks, or you just look uh, to see the acute effects of one night of sleep restriction or full sleep deprivation, um, which, you know, that allows you to draw causal inferences, but then there's a question of generalizability. Um, do changes that occur after one night of poor sleep, does that generalize to, you know, six months of somewhat iffy, but not super poor quality sleep, you know? Um, so yeah, any uh, when you're talking about body comp or especially like strength and hypertrophy, any inferences you draw have to be very tentative because long-term high-quality RCTs simply don't exist for the reason that it would be impossible to recruit for a study like that. Uh, if if someone put out a flyer and they said like, hey, we're doing a study to see how sleep affects gains and I saw that flyer and said, ah, oh, interesting. I would like to contribute to the scientific process. I will volunteer for this study. I volunteer for the study, show up to the lab, and they say, we've randomized you into the sleep restriction group. You're going to be sleeping six hours a night every night for the next four months. I'd say, ah, well, I appreciate you. No getting... naps. Yeah, yeah. No I'd sleeping say, in on the weekends. I'd say, I appreciate you getting back with me, uh, but I'm going to have to politely decline your offer to participate in this study. Um, and I think virtually everyone would approach it the same way. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think we're ever going to see high quality RCTs. So uh, what I can say is, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, sleep extension studies have pretty promising results. So there have been a few studies. Uh, Sherry Ma, uh, Dr. Sherry Ma, uh, is the, the main researcher in this area, even though I don't think I've seen a new paper on this subject from her um, in the last like three or four years. 
But uh, there have been a handful of studies where they take relatively high level collegiate athletes and they have uh, and they basically say like, yeah, you sleep seven ish hours per night. What if you just slept nine or ten for a few weeks and then you observe the changes? And they they do tend to find uh, pretty striking improvements in a pretty wide array of measures pretty quickly. So everything from hand-eye coordination, which you might expect just because people might be a little bit less sleepy. So, you know, they looked at tennis serve accuracy, free throw accuracy in basketball, those types of things improve. Um, but then just like an- anaerobic performance tends to improve as well. So there was a study looking at like swimming sprint speed. Uh, the basketball study included some some sprint type outcomes. Uh, and, and you see some pretty striking improvements and stuff like that in pretty high level athletes pretty quickly. Um, but again, we're, we're not talking about tremendously long interventions there. And they don't in- also include like a long term sleep restriction uh, group for comparison. Uh, but that stuff's pretty promising. On the body comp uh, side of things, probably the best study we have, which I know I've written about for Stronger by Science like back in 2014 or so, uh, and I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, there was a paper called uh, Insufficient Sleep Undermines Dietary Efforts to Reduce Adiposity. Uh, This was a very well-controlled but very short-term study where uh, subjects were in a calorie deficit and sleeping either eight and a half hours per night or five and a half hours per night for 14 days straight. Uh, They found that sleep restriction didn't impact the total amount of weight that was lost, but the proportion of weight that was lost that came from lean mass rather than fat mass uh, was quite a bit greater uh, when, when people were sleeping five and a half hours per night. I mean, two weeks, two weeks isn't great, but I think that's about the longest uh, sleep restriction type study we're going to see. So I I do think, um, you know, I I do think we could maybe conclude that if you're, or we could draw a weak inference that if you're trying to maintain as much muscle as possible when dieting, uh, trying to sleep enough is probably pretty important. And then as far as, as muscle related stuff goes, really all we have to go on is, is mechanisms uh, insufficient sleep can reduce sex hormone production. Um, and since, uh, your, your biggest, uh, growth hormone pulses and therefore subsequent IGF one pulses, uh, largely come at night subsequent to pulsed melatonin releases. Uh, you know, your kind of 24 hour area under the curve for several major anabolic hormones might be reduced if you're not sleeping enough. Maybe that's going to have negative impacts on muscle. If you're already generally healthy, though, it's it's hard to say that for sure. Uh, another thing we know is that not sleeping enough generally tends to mess with hunger and satiety cues. So um, even independent of maybe uh, direct effects on body composition, it might make it a little bit harder to stick to a uh, reduced calorie diet, um, you know, just because you might be a little bit hungrier and uh, also may just have uh, bigger issues with impulse control. Like that's something that comes with, uh, with sleep restriction as well. Um, one thing I'll note though, as well on the exercise side of things, and I, uh, did not grab studies to put in the outline, just take my word on it. I think we've talked about some of these on the podcast before. Um, 
exercise tends to, so one, acute sleep restriction tends to have less of an effect on strength and anaerobic performance uh, than you'd probably expect. So uh, even one night of complete sleep deprivation, um, your performance will probably be hindered if you're trying to do a really high volume resistance training session. Uh, but just like the ability to kind of get up and go and perform pretty well for a low to moderate amount of volume uh, is generally preserved pretty well acutely after just one or two nights of, of pretty poor sleep. Um, and then on kind of the muscle side of things, there have been some studies that have looked at uh, like baseline muscle protein synthesis in a well-rested versus sleep-deprived state, finding that uh, MPS is reduced to some degree. But then you put a resistance training stimulus into the mix and the post-exercise uh, muscle protein synthesis rates seem to be pretty similar, uh, regardless of the preceding night of sleep. Um, so yeah, like short term, you seem to be able to perform pretty well, and you still get a pretty decent uh, muscle protein synthetic response. Who knows what those effects would look like uh, extrapolated, you know, beyond a single day to multiple weeks. I do kind of think that it's it's probably going to have a negative impact on your gains to some degree, uh, but um, you know, it, at, at this point we're, we're teetering along the line of, uh, drawing weak inferences from data and just pure speculation. <laughs> so I would say overall sleep is a good thing. Uh, I, I personally think that sleeping enough is probably going to have, I feel quite confident saying it's going to have beneficial effects on body comp. Uh, and I'm reasonably confident assuming that it's going to have beneficial effects on uh, your ability to get stronger and build muscle. Um, but what I would also say is that anyone who's trying to put strict, precise numbers on the magnitude of that impact is uh, they're just making shit up. <laughs> uh, the, the evidence simply doesn't exist to kind of give uh uh, granular expectations for what to expect with sufficient versus insufficient sleep. All right. Uh, this will be a quick one. Philip Grammatif. God, this guy comments on our stuff all the time. I should know how to pronounce his name. It's so many syllables. Grammatikovsky. I think that's correct. Grammatikovsky. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Philip asks, uh, much of sports science studies are conducted on young males are there any studies uh, or areas in particular that we would have reason to think female physiology would give different results? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, and I, I'm not totally in terms of, in terms of the physiology thing. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing to consider um, is that, uh, certain, certain supplements and just certain chemical compounds, uh, uh, sex hormones and in particular estrogen can affect how they're metabolized and the rate at which they're metabolized. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, but, but kind of the poster child for that is, uh, caffeine. So, uh, the rate at which, uh, women metabolize caffeine uh, varies based on where they're at in their menstrual cycle and might vary between uh, women using versus not using hormonal contraception. So um, on, on a physiological level, 
I mean, anything that might be interacting with sex hormones or where sex hormones might interact with the rate at which certain compounds are metabolized, uh, I think those would be the the places to look. If you're asking about this purely from a physi- physiology uh, basis, personally, though, uh, I'm going to answer this question just, you know, what what areas are there a quite is there quite a bit of research on males where i'd like to see more research on females um and the first thing that comes to mind which uh generally wouldn't be the first thing that would come to mind for me because uh, i generally don't care about them uh is uh supplements a lot of supplement research uh there's a lot of studies on males not that many on females uh caffeine used to be one actually where uh, like 98% of the research was was on male subjects. Uh, and I think we talked about this maybe two episodes ago, but within the last two years, there's there's been a, uh, a renaissance. I can't call it a renaissance. That's a rebirth. There's been an initial zance of uh, exercise caffeine research in women. So that, that's good to see. But yeah, a lot of supplements, uh, bodies of research, lean very heavily towards male subjects. So I'd, I'd like to see uh, more female supplement studies. Um, one area where I'm particularly interested uh, in, in like muscle type outcomes in women uh, is uh, blood flow restriction research. A lot of that stuff leans pretty heavily uh, towards the male side of things. And there have been some initial studies suggesting that maybe blood flow restriction is... Uh, it has a, it might have a slightly smaller anabolic effect in uh, females' muscles than males' muscles. Um, but again, we we need to see some more research before I could say that uh, pretty confidently. But that's that's an area where I'd like to see more research on women. Um, and I think the last one is I'd like to see more uh, more studies comparing high load and low load training in uh, in women. Uh, for a long time, there there were a dozen studies in men, and there was a 2012 paper by Schwenke uh, that was the only high-load, low-load study in women. Uh, since then, I think there have been either two or three more studies um, that, that have found results that are similar to the research on men uh, in that high load and low load training seem to have uh, fairly similar effects on hypertrophy. Uh, the Schwenke study, though, did find that high load training was way, way more effective than low load training for hypertrophy in women. Uh, and there there hasn't been like a major result like that on the male side of things. Uh, so I, I would want to see, I think, another probably two or three high load, low load uh, hypertrophy studies uh, in women. Uh, and, and actually there's one more, I'd like to see, uh, more volume studies in women as well. Like the impact of training volume on hypertrophy and strength gains. Most of, most of that research, uh, uses male subjects or predominantly male subjects. Um, and there's some reason to believe that, uh, women both maybe can tolerate higher levels of training volume within a single session, like recovering better set to set maybe recovering a little bit better uh, between resistance training sessions than males do. Um, so there's some reason to believe that the optimal training volume for women might be a little bit higher than the optimal training volume for men. 
So I'd like to see uh, more volume studies on women uh, individually, but then also um, comparing the effects of various levels of training volume uh, in both males and females within the, within the context of the same study to see if kind of that optimal level of volume um, seems to on average differ between sexes. I, I suspect it does, but there's, there's not enough research uh, currently to say for sure. Good stuff. Do you, do you have any that you'd like to see? Um, mm, nothing that really comes to mind. Like, I feel like you already mentioned it, but with the supplement research, there's just so much that is male heavy. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it has, it, it's changing, you know, um, there are a lot of studies coming out that, um, you know, pretty explicitly are just like, yeah, we're testing this in, in female participants because we think we know about this supplement and we've never tried. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we think we know the effects of this supplement, but when we look at the extant literature, we realize we only know the effects of this supplement in about 49% of the population. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I would be just like an interesting aspect of physiology, I think, is metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, and given differences in substrate utilization, I think it might be interesting to look at uh, how different nutritional patterns could potentially influence uh, metabolic flexibility in males versus females. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it would be particularly, uh, you know, actionable. You know, I don't think, I don't, I'm not certain that there'd be a high degree of practical application. Uh, but I just think it's a fascinating concept. Yeah. Um, divergent. Yeah. You know, I, I think it'd be interesting to look at, uh, you know, more research on sex differences uh, in terms of different weight loss strategies, um, different dietary combinations. And, um, you know, much like people have kind of speculated that, you know, individuals who are more insulin resistant might do better on this diet versus that diet. I, I think, the more that we continue to explore these kind of open research questions, the better, but there's, there's not like one, um, one particular topic where I'm mm -hmm. like, that's, that's what I'd like to see. I gotcha. Yeah. Oh, uh, th this, this wouldn't necessarily be a males versus females thing. Uh, but one, one other area where I'd like to see more research in, in women in particular, uh, is looking at the effects of uh, menstrual cycle phase on recovery from resistance training. There was a really cool paper by Markovsky in 2014 that looked at this, uh, finding that recovery from like a pretty brutal eccentric exercise session uh, was, was considerably quicker during the follicular phase of the cycle versus the luteal phase. And I think that there's been maybe one, maybe two other papers since then that have that have waded into those waters. But uh, man, there, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of research on uh, the impact of the menstrual cycle on acute exercise performance uh, across basically every conceivable domain of performance. Uh, you know, aerobic capacity, uh, repeated sprint performance maximum dynamic strength, maximum isometric strength, all types of stuff looking at uh, how different menstrual cycle phases affect various things. Turns out not all that much, uh, really. But um, th there hasn't been that much looking at the effects of menstrual cycle phases on recovery, which 
theoretically could have a, a notable impact um, because uh, sex hormones seem to influence recovery from uh, muscle damage in, in women quite a bit. Um, so estrogen tends to promote uh, like muscular healing and recovery uh, post-training. Um, you, you can see that uh, in women with different estrogen levels. You can see that when women go on hormone replacement therapy, um, like if they're postmenopausal, um, and I mean, just like kind of mechanistic cell culture research shows that as well. Uh, there was a good, a good review paper on that. I think from 2010 by ENS and colleagues, E N N S. Um, but yeah, so theoretically with, with fluctuating estrogen levels, uh, throughout the menstrual cycle, you could conceivably predict uh, different rates of of recovery from resistance training. And like I said, that Markovsky study suggests that it might have a have a relatively large impact. Um, but yeah, I, I want to see more follow-up work in that area uh, before stating that with with a super high degree of confidence. So that's that's another area where where I definitely like to see more research. let's uh, let's move on. I've got two more. Think they should be pretty quick as well. Yeah, we're um, about two and a half hours into the episode, by the way. Hell yeah. Okay. So this next one, we already have the answer. Lightning Bolt 66 from Reddit asks, is there anything within the industry that you and Eric fundamentally disagree on? And uh I'm gonna say no because I don't want to get kicked off the podcast. And that's uh yeah, I, I think we can leave it at that. All right, and finally, also from Reddit, Gravity Fighter asks, the big breakthrough in the supplement world was creatine, and everyone's always looking for the next creatine. One of the major breakthroughs in powerlifting training in the, in the powerlifting training world was through Mike T's RTS. Uh, if there is to be another major breakthrough in powerlifting training, which area of training do you see it being in? Um, and I, I think... Uh, <sighs> I think if we could develop better screening tools to more efficiently uh, personalize and individualize training, I think that that would be kind of the the next big step forward. Because, um, I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. That's that's what good coaches do. They motivate people to work hard and they figure out what works well on an individual athlete-by-athlete athlete basis. Like, those are those are the two kind of most important skills for coaches, I think. Um, but ultimately, when you're trying to individualize training, uh, especially if you're dealing with people who are relatively well-trained already, is you're trying to make fairly precise inferences from pretty noisy data. So if you're dealing with someone who, like, an excellent training cycle, they might put uh, 10, 15 pounds on their squat, um, but also, you know, just day-to-day -day performance fluctuates. So, you know, their one rep max squat might vary by 15 pounds day-to-day. -day. The difference between a good training, like a great training cycle and not a great training cycle where they don't actually get any stronger, you might not even be able to tell that over the course of a single training cycle because, you know, bad training cycle, but just a good testing day at the end. Cool. Looks like you put 15 pounds on your squat. Uh, excellent training cycle where you have an average testing day, you put 15 pounds on your squat, you know, ultimately you're, you're looking, you're dealing with somewhat noisy measurements, looking for relatively small changes. 
and uh, generally looking for for pretty um, pretty specialized training interventions. Like, you know, if if you're dealing, if you're trying to figure out like the optimal level of training volume for someone, or like if a particular accessory lift is working well for them, like those are those are relatively. Uh, those are questions that lend themselves to relatively precise answers. And it it can be hard to find the signal in the noise. Um, And ultimately the total pool of questions you could ask and total training interventions you could try on an individual uh, is virtually infinite. So I think if there, if we had better screening tools and, you know, maybe it's, it's, uh, based on like genetics, once genetic screening becomes better, maybe it's based on like, I don't know, whatever else, who the fuck knows. Uh, but I, I, I think if we had tools where like at baseline before going through a multi-month or multi-year process of trying to figure out the optimal approach to training for an individual, if you could just do some basic screening and get them pretty close, pretty quickly, Um, I think one more people would be exposed to training that is more appropriate for them and their unique physiology, which would be great. Uh, and also functionally, it would allow people to reach a higher training age sooner. Like, I think a lot of people have the experience of, uh, training for a while, kind of getting decent results and then finally hitting on a style of training that works really well for them. And that's kind of what allows them to take, take a step to the next level of, kind of whatever they're training for. But if you could just start there uh, at at whatever style of training lets you get to that next level, um, you know, functionally, you could uh, be training for a year, but be in the same general place that you may have taken five years to get to otherwise. So, you know, when, when you're dealing with powerlifting, you want people to get pretty fucking strong, pretty young, so that they have time to, to build and, and mature. Um, and so, yeah, if you could basically skip that period that a lot of people experience where their training time isn't wasted, but it's not used super productively, um, I think that that would be really valuable. So yeah, better, better tools to, uh, screen and individualize training better for individuals from the jump. Um, again, I, I'm not totally sure what that would look like, but I, I think if, something like that were to present itself that that would be a pretty big step forward yeah it would be cool if if we could get some like really large powerlifting programs uh to kind of get on board with some meticulous record keeping Mm -hmm. to just start developing like an enormous database of some key characteristics general trajectories in terms of uh progression for the lifter i mean to get to some of these individualized uh nuances the need for for data is pretty overwhelming Mm -hmm. i mean just the the sheer volume of data that would be needed to support any kind of thorough statistical analysis is it would take quite a feat quite mm-hmm. an effort to make that to make that viable. It, it would be doable, but logistically it, w- it would take some serious buy-in. Yeah. But it'd be very, very cool if someone were to organize something that sounds anything like that. That'd be cool. Absolutely. All right. Uh, to play us out, um, Bear Week 
is over and bear week is also canceled. Um, I have canceled it. We have canceled it. Um, so I put my money, I put a lot of money on chunk to win it all. And I know that you were pulling for grazer and the winner, uh, as they're calling it was 480 Otis. And Many people are calling him Sleepy Otis. <laughs> yeah. So this is the fourth title for 480 Otis, uh, 2014, 2016, 2017, and 2021. I mean, this is like an Alabama-type run that Otis is on. Um, a lot of, I guess I would say, irregularities in terms of the composition of the bracket. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I You have nothing to complain about. Chunk got a first round buy, which uh, many people are saying was very undeserved. Uh, I think I think uh, as as a Grazer fan, I'm very upset with uh, the bracket they gave her. First, they made her compete against 435 Holly in the first round. Uh, you know, forcing strong women to fight with each other uh, over scraps that that's that's functionally a glass because only one can can yeah, go on to the elite eight exactly they're they're saying like look we can have a female bear in the elite eight but we can't have two uh, i think i think the implication with the seating was obvious and you can do with that what you will because they were the only two females right i don't know if that's the case that's what you told me when you were upset about this previously well, th- those are the <laughs> those are the only two female names on the other side of the bracket there are some bears that only have numbers attached to them and uh well no i see, that, could have potentially done more research that makes it worse to me because the other side of the bracket 480 otis is the only bear with a name Every other bear only has a three-digit number. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. They but, gave, they gave him a fucking cakewalk. Yeah, humans are voting on this, and who are you going to vote for? A, a fat bear named Otis or eight twelve? Yeah, so come on, you're so, going to vote for Otis for for they, people they, following they let along. Him sleepwalk to the championship round. Literally every bear on the left side of the bracket has a cute name, and Otis was the only bear with a name on the right side of the bracket. So on the left side, you're like, oh, look at little chunk and look at the little baby cub who should have won by a landslide. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. That's, yeah, that's fucked. Yeah, so. Oh my God. Needless to say, we're upset. The, the fix was in. Yeah. But yeah, so they, they made Holly and Grazer fight. Uh, it can only have one female in the Elite Eight. And then what the, what do they do in the next round? Of course, Holly steam, or uh, of course, Grazer steamrolled in the first round because she was always going to. She's a star. But yeah, then uh, they gave 132 Cub, very cute. You should look yeah. up pictures. <laughs> they gave the Cub a first round buy and put the Cub on the same side of the bracket as Holly and Grazer. So the winner of that round was going to have to go up against a Cub next, which yeah. I shouldn't have to. Uh, I shouldn't have to spell out how patently unfair that is, you know, yeah. like. If if they thought, uh, you know, Otis, multi-time returning champion, if they thought he that Otis had the juice, they should have put Otis up against the Cub. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, uh, 132 Cub did take down Grazer. I can't be that upset about it. That Cub's so cute. Yeah. Um. Anyway, you know, uh, it's th- yeah. This this fat bear week uh, has left a very 
a very sour taste in my mouth. And I don't know that I can ever trust democracy again. But it's just like any other sport when your team loses in the playoffs and you're like, you know what? I invested so much in this season and I'm so upset and angry and disappointed. I'm not doing this again. I'm out. Like this sport is dead to me. But where are we going to be next October? Filling out our brackets. That's true. We simply can't stay away from Fat Bear Week. Katmai National Park and Preserve simply cannot keep us away. No. Uh, but anyway, it seems like it's the same uh, same general group of characters every year. So, I mean, you can really start to develop some serious attachment to the bear of your choice. So Chunk will be back and we'll do our best in 2022. Uh, all right. That does it for this episode. As always, thanks for joining us and we will be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.